Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spoop Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms and, again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. You ready to record, man? Uh, yeah. Yeah, cool. I'm good. Phone's muted. I got my drink. Um, so I'm ready to go. Yeah. What the fuck is that you're drinking? So I call that a, uh, devil's backbone. It is, uh, some ginger ale and some rum and spices and lime and, um, a little fetus floater. Gives it that little extra kick. It's pretty good. Oh, I'll have to make that later. Anyway. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by the movie monster boy Aaron, who you just heard who's drinking the devil's backbone, mm. and me, the Craven co-host Derek, uh, which we dissect the fears, phobia, social relevancy, which we're going to have a lot to talk about as far as social relevancy goes today, of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are with horror newbies and horror junkies alike. This one had a spooky ghost, so I have a lot to talk about in that department. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron, so uh, it's just me and you again. We are doing Del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Um, It is kind of funny because off air we were talking about how we're 100 plus episodes in and we're only now doing a Del Toro movie. Yeah, I think The Devil's Backbone is a really good place to start with his filmography and uh, as an introduction to him. This is where I kind of always intended for us to start with his stuff, for sure. Yeah, and we're going to say it up top. This movie has probably been picked apart by podcasts because I feel like Del Toro really rose in popularity here in America, at least. When we were teenagers going into college, it feels like every average white guy with a podcast, aka our generation of millennials, Aaron, and which we are in that same category, anyone who talks about horror has probably talked to death about Del Toro and specifically this movie, too. This and Pan's Labyrinth. Del Toro, sure. Weirdly enough, and maybe I was just looking in the wrong spots, I kind of found that not a lot of people have talked about this one. Oh, okay. That makes me feel better then. I think people have talked to death, Pan's Labyrinth, yeah, and all of his newer stuff. I mean, you got to keep in mind, this was before he did Blade. Yeah. This was early right. in his career. And uh, yeah, I didn't really find a whole lot of other people talking about this movie. So honestly, we might be one okay. of the few talking about this title. Okay, that makes me feel a little better because I know we're not going to really be saying anything original about Del Toro the man because everyone's talked about him, but we're going to do our best. So hopefully uh, sit tight and you enjoy the ride with us. But before we get to that, we're going to do our recommendations like usual. This is our recommendation section, which we talk about other horror we have recently gotten into lately, be it video games, other movies, TV shows, comic books, books, etc., etc. Aaron, it sounds like 
uncharacteristically don't really have any recommendations this week. Nope. I have nothing. So this is all on you, bro. All right. So I just have two to talk about a video game and a movie. I think I have a lot to talk about with video game. And then the movie, I think both of us can have a a little bit to say about. I'm going to start with the video game because I beaten this game earlier this week. I've been itching to talk about it and waiting for us to record so I could talk about it. I tweeted from our podcast Twitter at the game's Twitter and their developer's Twitter, and they actually retweeted my tweet. Oh, okay. Just saying how great, I, how much I enjoyed the game. The game that I'm going to recommend, it's out on PS5, Xbox Series X, and Steam on PC. It is called The Chant. It's been a long time. It's so beautiful here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm telling you, Jess. Being here is going to change your life. Welcome to our humble retreat. Everyone's excited to finally meet you. Welcome. I understand it took some convincing, but we're so glad you came. Kim is a good friend to you, and that makes you a good friend to us. So, what's Tyler's connection to this island? Tyler's family used to run a commune in the 70s. I'm sure you have many questions. But isn't that how our spiritual journey begins? Stop blaming me! Kim, don't break the circle. It came out towards the end of last year. came out in November, early November 2022. Already, this game feels like it's an underrated, underappreciated gem from 2022 because it didn't get the best reviews. It got kind of around the 7 out of 10 range. I don't know if this is just the type of game that works so well for me personally. I was floored at how much I enjoyed this game and how much I've been thinking about this game since beating it. And it doesn't reinvent the wheel too much in a lot of ways and certainly the game has its problems but i haven't been this excited about a horror game since maybe even alien isolation now granted is this the best horror game i've ever played no there's so many greatest of all time horror games out there obviously but as far as like my excitement and this kind of coming out of left field and kind of hitting me in the face with how much i was enjoying it as a horror game, I haven't felt that way again. Like Alien Isolation sure. also took me by surprise. Before I kind of really get into what this game is dealing with, Explorers, and why I recommend it, let me get into like the negatives first right up top. The game is clunky. It feels like one of those games that's almost in between indie and AAA. I'd, I'd say the budget for this game, or this game feels like it's above indie developers, but developers themselves seem like they're kind of a ragtag team This is kind of their first game that they're trying to get their feet wet, but it's not quite all the way up to the quality of like a Resident Evil or like one of these AAA, like mainstream horror video games. 
like I said, the game is clunky. The combat is very grounded and can feel maybe a little bit clunky. It's all melee based combat with a little bit of kind of spiritual magic going on with it. That might be the biggest turnoff for people because otherwise, I feel like the setting itself and the story is really impressive. So let me get into like why I enjoyed this game. It is a third person action horror adventure, kind of done in the similar style of like Resident Evil 4, where it's over the shoulder. Um, you play as this woman named Jess. Sometime in the past, an accident happened between her, her best friend at the time named Kim, and her younger sister. Her younger sister winded up passing away in whatever accident or whatever happened. And Kim and Jess kind of like grew apart and didn't really forgive each other over what happened. Fast forward years later, Kim invites Jess as kind of an olive branch to like the spiritual retreat to help her with her own anxieties and PTSD and all the problems she's been facing since dealing with this tragic moment in the past. Now, in the backdrop of all of that, the game starts and it's actually like kind of a tutorial intro. The game starts in the 1970s and you're playing as this unnamed pregnant woman who is in the middle of this cult ritual and she just decides in the middle of the ritual like fuck this I'm bailing and runs and like when she's running you're playing through her like escaping the island and running away from all the cultists and and the game is like teaching you how to run around and like sure push enemies out of your way. Yeah, that's like your yeah, tutorial and I'm not giving anything away because this is like the first five minutes of the game. She reaches the edge of the cliff of this island. She hears and kind of sees just this unknowable creature cornering her and she just jumps. Then the game fast forwards more to the present with Jess and Jess going to the island. Uh, what I loved about this game is it is so obvious that this is a cult when you first arrive on the island. Kim greets you at the shore. She's barefoot. She's wearing only white baggy clothes. And like is even saying like, oh, you're supposed to wear like only whiteness for like spiritual purity because white means purity. And they're not saying they are a cult, but obviously they are. And like you meet this guru type, almost like Kali Yoga, probably trust fund kid who like inherited this island from his parents. And his name is Tyler and he's a guru. And the name of this whole thing is called the Prismic Science Spiritual Retreat. And it deals with prismatic science which is such a good cult kind of idea. Yeah, just nonsense bullshit that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You kind of meet like some of the other people in the island and each of them have like, their own like baggage from the past and all of them are like, just trust us, this works. Whatever negativity that you have felt, you will be able to let go and blah, blah, blah. You kind of explore and talk to them for a little while. Then the nighttime falls and you guys start doing this ritual chant. And the idea behind it is you're supposed to release all your negative energy out. Backfires when Kim, the person who invited you to the island, gets consumed by her own negative energies and like explodes on Jess, blames her for everything that happened in the past, runs off. And with that happening in the middle of the chant ritual, you find out that that wasn't all total bullshit. It's just that. Anton was way in over his head with the ritual or Tyler Anton. That's again the, the leader. Okay. I was about to say appropriate name for a yeah. thing about a cult. Yeah. 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 Because of like the ritual failing, it basically opens up this cosmic dimension that think like a cross between the upside down from stranger things 
and kind of the fungus from The Last of Us, just like this Lovecraftian other outer dimension opens up and it's just filled with all these creatures that literally feed off of negative emotions. And the name of it is called the gloom. It's actually a little bit controllish too, because I know the control had the hiss as well as like that fungus as well sure. in that. Yeah, yeah. You start the game off, you're gonna go f- try and find Kim because like she flipped the fuck out, and then it goes from there. You know, one by one, like all the the six or seven people on this island with you start succumbing to the gloom and like meeting their end in horrific ways, and it turns out as you go on. It becomes a video game in that way of, oh, you need each one of them. Everyone's wearing a prism that's a different color. And it turns out the prisms actually are like imbued with spiritual energy. And you need everybody's prism together to reverse the ritual, basically, to perform the ritual to completion. So you're basically going to different parts of the island, trying to save everyone, but also get their prisms back so you can complete this. Trying to convince everybody to come back. yeah. Yeah. But everyone's flipping the fuck out. And each prism is done by a different color. It's really cool because there are sections of the game where you actually enter the gloom. Like there's portions of the island that are literally like infected by the gloom specifically. And when you enter these portions, it becomes very like you're hallucinating all these otherworldly plants and creatures that are attacking you. The longer you stay in it, the more your mental energy gets drained. And when your mental energy gets drained, you literally have a panic attack and you can basically be killed mentally. There are actually three bars that Jess has two health bars one is mental health bar and one is more of her a body health bar which is more of a traditional health bar in a video game like a physical health bar and then she has her spiritual health bar which doesn't kill her but that's what she uses to like be able to tap into the prismatic crystals to like use these powers against the creatures something else i really enjoy about this game is it pokes fun a lot at these kind of cultish nonsense alternate science but at the same time a lot of the like mind body spirit stuff actually works against these creatures like your your weapons are literally a sage stick a witch stick and a fire lash and you craft all these with basically herbs the sage stick is good against smaller enemies the witch stick is good against enemies that are actually in the gloom and the fire lash is good against uh, enemies outside the gloom because this ritual also spit out all the cultists from this other dimension and they're all now like fucked up mad zombie-ish people all wearing these different creature masks and they're also around the island and the bad thing is they can actually stalk you outside the gloom they're the ones that usually more attack you physically rather than mentally this game is very much inspired by like psychedelic horror especially from like the 70s while it is taking place in modern times you are exploring the backdrop and what happened to this cult from the 70s you have more information is revealed to you through notes and like these projector images from the original cult leader even the soundtrack itself is very electronic rock, very synth wavy, even maybe a little bit drony. And color, like I said, is very much a part of the game because depending on even the gloom color you enter, once you enter it, you can hear the inner thoughts of each of the members of the cult. You hear what they really think or like their insecurities like sure. literally coming out. The horror itself is pretty great. This game actually jump scared me a couple times but also just nails cosmic dread and cosmic horror really well again i just think the only downside to this game is i just wish kind of like what you were going through aaron with a couple of movies that you've talked about recently movies that were popular last year as far as horror goes 
I just wish it leaned a little bit more into the psychedelic, leaned a little bit more into explaining to you what's going on. Kind of does that control thing where it's a mind fuck, but it's also doing a good job of explaining everything to you as long as you're like paying attention to the notes and the research. Yeah. But I think the game needs to take it a step further. But all the faults of this game, I don't really lay on the feet of the developers because I think honestly, it's just they were making a passion project. This feels like a beautiful passion project that is flawed, but you can tell that they put their energy into this and really wanted to make the best they could with the budget they had. And so I think a lot of these things could be correct in like maybe a sequel if they have a bigger budget. I don't know if they'll ever make a sequel to this game. I would love to do that. I'd love to explore what happens to Jess further and more of this world. And yeah, I think the game has a lot to say about cultism, especially exploring cults from the 70s. I think the game has something to say about alternate science, alternate medicine, and like this new agey spirituality. Prismatic science, again, is such a good name for a cult. Yeah. Um, this game even has a little bit to say, like one of the members of this group, her insecurity is that her child died because it's implied that she refused to vaccinate him. She didn't believe in vaccinations and he wind up getting one of the illnesses that could easily been prevented and passing away. And that's what brought her to this island retreat. So I think there's a little bit that this game is kind of poking fun at or talking about that is a little bit relevant to everybody. It's never like super in your face about it, but it is there. Sure. Uh, again, that's maybe one of those things. Maybe they could lean a little bit more into that in a sequel. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, it's not a perfect game by any stretch of the imagination, but it is such a passion project. And I felt the passion the whole way I was playing through it. And frankly, it, it still introduced interesting mechanics that you don't necessarily see a lot in games in general. I like the mechanic of having two health bars. I like the mechanic of balancing your mind, body, and spirit. And certain enemies are more susceptible to certain things. There's even just an interesting idea because like, not only do you have these three different herb sticks that can fight off enemies, uh, you also use salt to like stun certain enemies. You can use literally natural oils as like another okay. trap you can do and like firebomb. When you think about it throughout mythology and throughout humanity, like the idea of salt, herbs, and fire, those are sure. all very like alchemist spiritual things. And like that's where I think it's interesting that the game weaponizes a lot of that new agey kind of spirituality stuff. Yeah, a lot of the crunchy stuff. And Jess doesn't fall for any of this shit, obviously, but that's what I love about her character is like, this is fucking with her a lot. She can't believe it's happening, but she perseveres. We gotta fix this. Like, yeah. I don't really care like why it's happening I, or what the fuck's going on, but I we need to fix this. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed it. The developer who retweeted us is Brass Token. So good job, Brass Token. I think you guys should be proud of this game. I hope it sells uh, relatively well. It's already been on sale. Like I think it, at the time of this recording, which you know we are recording way in advance, so who knows? But time of this recording, it's fifty percent off on Steam. From what I saw, it was about a ten-hour game. I'd say uh, when it first came out, it was forty bucks, um, not the full sixty that a lot of the games are now. Some people might not think that's still enough for even a $40, but that's why it's great that it's already on sale and hopefully it keeps going on sale because I think this is a must-play for horror gamers and anyone who's generally curious should also check it out too. Again, that's the chant, the game. Real quick, if you want an interesting kind of analysis of the game, someone, I can't remember, I don't have it pulled up, but on the subreddit for Lovecraft, it's literally r slash Lovecraft, 
search something called the chant wellness from the gloom and it is a great analysis of everything lovecraftian and everything about the game and what the symbology of the game means all of that it's a good dissertation on the game itself so yeah i i really enjoyed it looking it up it looks like the main character is actually voiced by siobhan williams yes i forgot to bring that up who was one of the main characters in uh the quarry that heather and i played a while back yeah and she uh she does a great job as jess like i said i would love for this series to continue in some way i'd love to continue to see jess's story unfold because i think jess is such a good main character so yeah that's all i got about to say about the chant check it out great lovecraft horror game again brass token the developer who made this you guys should be proud of yourselves so yeah the second thing i'll bring up and this is kind of something i think both of us can talk about aaron is i checked out a movie kind of a movie movie <laughs> question mark and i'm doing this on purpose it's on Tubi for free and that's why i watched it i watched 1992 british reality horror pseudo documentary television film oh uh, i know what you're talking about named ghost watch hell yeah on saturday night We'll be visiting the most haunted house in Britain. But will the ghosts be there? Can you take it? A Screen One special for Halloween, Saturday at 9.25 on One. Ghostwatch was first broadcast on the BBC on Halloween night back in 1992. It literally acts like it is a legitimate reality TV live documentary of well-known at the time, like BBC TV personalities. And it jumps back and forth between this telethon live stage and the house itself. Think Ghost Hunters straight up television crew going to this house and trying to interact with the spirit. It was presented as a live broadcast and hosted by Michael Parkinson. And if I, you look at Michael Parkinson, he's been in talk TV and news and everything on the UK. He worked in radio. He's just one of those faces that if you live in the UK, you probably have seen in morning shows all the time. It also featured other personalities, like literally a husband and wife team that were also featured on a lot of these kind of programs throughout the UK. It was created and written by Stephen Volk. I don't know much about his career. Do you, Aaron? Can you say more about Stephen Volk? Not off the top of my head, no. Yeah. And it's kind of done in that like War of the Worlds style of, you know, back War of the Worlds happened over the radio teleplay, and it freaked people out. People literally thought aliens were invading. And kind of the same thing happened because this is still pre-internet 1992. The switchboard and the number they provided on Ghostwatch, they reported over a million phone calls. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people across UK thought it was real. And there was even controversy after this aired because someone apparently committed suicide. Wow. Yeah, like I was reading that there was this 18-year-old factory worker who had learning disabilities. And he had kind of the mental capacity of like a 11 or 12 year old. The home he was living in, their central heating system or like their air made a lot of banging noises that were similar to the pipes being knocked around during this mockumentary. He literally like left a suicide note basically saying like, if there are ghosts, I'm going to be a ghost now. 
or something like that. I was reading that they even did a little bit of a study, like a psychiatric study on the British Medical Journal to the psychiatric study on children a couple of years after Ghostwatch aired, seeing like the ramifications, if there were any. And they found that there really weren't. Children were acutely scared to fuck and back by it and like couldn't sleep for a few weeks. Sure. But otherwise, they mostly just grew out of it. But there was some PTSD involved with this. Uh, so the, the premise of Ghostwatch is they set it up as this telethon slash live broadcast of a ghost hunt happening on Halloween. It included a, at the time, like a minor British celebrity was there doing like crowd work at the outside of the house. The thing is, they all shot this way before. They shot it like a movie, basically. Yeah. They treated it like it was live, but it actually wasn't live. And actually, people who called in, anyone who actually got through on the switchboard, were told this is a fictional thing. But then they were asked, you know, please provide your ghost story. Because that was how they got viewers involved. It was like they were like, call us in and tell us your real life ghost story. It follows a family, a single mother and her two daughters, in a house that is supposedly haunted by a ghost called Mr. Pipes. And the way he kind of manifests himself is through banging of pipes in their house. That's why he's called Mr. Pipes. As you kind of go through it, you start finding out that there's this fucked up history of the neighborhood that this house is in, and maybe the house itself at one point was home of someone who like had a very tragic past and wind up committing suicide. At the same time, they're doing their best to actually treat this like a legitimate thing, like because they have this expert from New York who is a skeptic and he's in there. There's at one point they catch one of the daughters basically making the pipe noises herself. So like they throw that at you of like, Oh, this was a hoax. Yeah. But then as it continues going on, no, Mr. Pipes is real. The thing that I really liked is some of the camera shots. You can actually see Mr. Pipes in the background. They had an actual actor dress up as the ghost and stand in the background of some shots people kept calling in saying like, no, I saw Mr. Pipes in the background of that shot. Like, how are you not seeing it in the curtains and this and that? I really dug the shit of it. This is very much something that will never happen again. It is very much a product of its time. It's kind of a shame that it was really only in the UK and this wasn't something that happened in America because if this happened and I was at an old enough age but still young, I would have eaten this shit up and been terrified by it. You say that, but knowing how our fucking country is, people would have been burning fucking cars in the streets and rioting yeah you're right (laughs) and i was trying to think because it seemed so obvious not necessarily from the start of this but like once you start getting towards the end and like all the possessions shit starts happening and the ghost actually literally starts manifesting imply that it's now taking over like the broadcast itself and michael parkinson himself is now possessed once it gets all that i was thinking i was like how could you not think this is fiction but then at the same time, I'm like, but I can't say that. I, I don't have that yeah. context. The closest thing I could think of, imagine like a huge streamer, like one of the most popular streamers out there now did a live ghost hunt. Sorry, I'm laughing because my mind immediately went to imagine if a bunch of people on a certain news station were saying, huh, this last election was fucking stolen. Maybe you should all go yeah. and uh, yeah. storm the Capitol. Like, mm, nah, shit could happen. Yeah, reality is stranger than fiction. Um, yeah, no, you're right. But I mean, like the modern equivalent I th- could think of this is like someone does like a Twitch stream that features some of the biggest Twitch streamers in history 
and they are all treating this a thousand percent real and they they try and recreate yeah. the, like the mr beast gets possessed and starts vomiting pea soup on <laughs> live twitter yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean we have all these ghost hunting shows now ghost adventures etc cetera, etc cetera, and like no one gives a shit like no one bats an eye at it but like to have a live broadcast program in the style of found footage basically pre blair witch years before blair witch and for it to like basically not paralyze but captivate all of britain and have over a million people calling in and yeah. tens of thousands of people thinking it was real well there's also that added layer of the fact that this is the bbc this is the news yeah. again imagine if you turn on CNN one day and they're just like, there's ghosts in the studio. What? CNN <laughs> could do it now. No, you mean more like you turn on PBS or something right now or C-SPAN and they, they do it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It would be more of the equivalent of C-SPAN doing it. But as far as the actual horror goes, it was actually pretty like creepy as fuck. The camera shots where Mr. Pipes is in the background is genuinely unsettling. The girl like doing the possession voice and acting possessed. I mean, that's always a trope that like, it's a little eye rolly, but it's one that's still effective for me, at least. And just the slow unraveling of the mystery of who is Mr. Pipes was pretty intense. Mr. Pipes is such a good name for yeah. like a supernatural villain, by the way. I was reading that behind the scenes, this whole production was actually inspired by the Enfield Poltergeist, which is Britain's most yeah. famous ghost haunting. But yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's free on Tubi. It's only 90 minutes. Perfect length for a horror movie. Yeah, it's on Tubi. 101 Films just put this out as well, um, which 101 Films, I believe, is a UK company, but they distribute to the US and it's a region free Blu-ray and it was cheap. I got like the nice limited edition of it with a booklet and all this other shit and it was like 20 bucks on Amazon. So this is also one that you can get a physical copy of if you would like. Yeah. Oh, and, and just real quick, one last thing I wanted to bring up, kind of going back to the controversy this caused, because there were a lot of people that were pretty pissed off after it aired. One of the people who like was calling in and trying to find out what the fuck happened was Michael Parkinson's elderly mother. <laughs> she apparently had watched this whole thing and freaked out thinking he was literally possessed by Mr. Pipes, because, spoiler alert, that's what's implied at the end of this, uh, is that he's trapped in this now desolate studio possessed by the ghost but then like one of the people on the ground gets trapped in like the closet where apparently this ghost was living in and where the person hung himself she gets like sucked into it but yeah it's a great time capsule thing that's yeah. fascinating to watch now like very early 90s the room that the girls were sleeping in was full of posters from 80s and 90s artists and all that it was it was fun to see it from that angle too but yeah ghost watch is a lot of fun and it's generally unsettling. And it's a great little like piece of found footage filmmaking that, again, predates Blair Witch Project. Again, I would say this probably had a ton of influence on a lot of found footage going forward. Cool. That's a perfect opportunity to transition over to the movie that we're covering for this episode. El Espinazo del Diablo, a.k.a. The Devil's Backbone. From 2001, directed by my boy, Guillermo del Toro. Usted, ¿quiere fantasmas? Ayúdame. Yo creo que he visto uno. Aquí. ¡A clase! ¡Vamos! ¿Qué es un fantasma? Ayúdame. 
¿Quién suspira? Un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez. Quedan diez lingotes más. No tienen padres. No tienen a nadie. Están desesperados de hambre. Mira cómo comen. Todos ahí abajo. Algo muerto que parece por momentos vivo aún. Un granito de fuerza. Un granito de fuerza. Un sentimiento suspendido en el tiempo. ¿Y el fantasma dónde está? Llegó con la bomba. Como un insecto atrapado en ámbar. Viví siempre pensando que había un tiempo después. No hay más tiempo, Carlos. No hay un después. So cool, yeah. We're gonna have a lot to talk about, Aaron. Between Del Toro himself, a little bit on the Spanish Civil War, and then just everything going on with yeah. this movie. And granted, uh, I think with us talking through, because this is our first time covering Del Toro, so we'll probably get pretty in depth with who he is, his background, etc. This is our first Del Toro, which is wild to believe. But is this also yeah. our first Spanish language horror movie? I think it is. I think it might be. Yeah, surprisingly too. And I, I think, granted, between talking about Del Toro and a little bit about the Spanish Civil War, I think naturally a lot of what's on this movie's mind is going to come out. I mean, the idea of childhood and dark fairy tale with Del Toro himself, a lot of that is on display in this movie. I would say that this is a really good gothic horror movie and a really good horror movie centered on kids. Now, granted, it's not a kid's movie by any stretch of the imagination. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking violent. Well, it does that thing that so many of Del Toro's movies do, which is this movie and Pan's Labyrinth are like the two kind of A and B movies that do this primarily, but very paired. Yeah. The idea of the real world in air quotes and the fantasy world blending together and kind of being one in the same to a younger kid fawns and ghosts and fairies and monsters and all this shit is just as real to a kid growing up as all the made-up bullshit that adults contrive right fucking politics and violence and all this other shit it's all the same to kids you know so kind of seeing it through that lens and being able to kind of dig into and discuss some of those themes and like see where a lot of our fucking issues as adults kind of stem from is how these things latch on to us as kids. Like a lot of that is very heavy in all of his movies, but primarily this. Yeah, to that point, granted, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the idea of the imagery that's kind of the center of this movie throughout it of the bomb that didn't go off that fell in the courtyard of this orphanage from you know, the standpoint of adult and the real world, that is a very real thing. A bomb is a tool of destruction for war. And this is not my original thought. I was This is a thought I came across just reading up on analysis for this movie and after I watched it, because I, I was very impressed with how good this movie was, by the way. But the idea of the bomb being like almost comically large sure, to yeah. make it seem more like surrealistic to a kid and like the idea that like the bomb is alive and that when you listen to it, you can hear like its heart beating, which is like a ticking noise. You have all that on the backdrop of a very real Spanish Civil War and a story of greed and unrequited love and all of this and that. To get to my point right off the bat about 
where this stands in the world of horror, specifically for people who are more casual viewers, this is a good starter movie for foreign horror. Yeah. This is a good starter movie for a ghost film that is at times legitimately creepy as fuck. And there's a couple scenes that are intense. I'm not going to lie. There is one jump scare that you can see coming and it still got me. The design of the ghost itself is Love fucking it. creepy as shit. It's a kid ghost too. It's a child. Yeah. But like the design is just as fascinating as it is creepy. Honestly, like I haven't seen a ghost design that creative since like the fatal frame games. The ghost design in this is so cool looking, but also just very unsettling and creepy as fuck. And like something I really appreciate about this movie is you see the ghost within 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, this movie doesn't fuck around about is there or is there not a ghost. Right off the bat, there's a ghost. Yeah. It is yeah. a matter of fact for this world. Yeah. And, like, I, I love the name of the ghost being the one who sighs. That's the name it's given of the children throughout the orphanage. But, yeah, I really enjoyed this movie. This is one of the best horror movies I think we've covered, period. You know, we just did Papa Scorsese. I'm Martin Scorsese, and this is Cinema Eyes Without a Face. <laughs> But if you want more of a, a modern, granted, 2001 is still decades ago, but a more modern hashtag cinema horror movie, I think The Devil's Backbone kind of fits that bill. Yeah. And I think this is a great starter even into Del Toro's filmography. This movie was purposely made paired with Pan's Labyrinth. Del Toro himself, as I think, stated that Pan's Labyrinth is a spiritual successor in many he ways. He has specifically said that they are siblings that this is the more masculine brother movie and that pan's labyrinth is the more feminine sister movie i could see that yeah that actually makes a lot of sense because this this movie has such a good focus on uh boyhood specifically that makes a lot of sense yeah so i guess to kind of get started in this entire discussion del toro is one of the modern master filmmakers masters of horror he is one of the dudes and has been for the last 20 years. And you know what's great about that, too, is he's also kind of a fucking nerd. Oh, absolutely. Have you seen his house? Like, his house is just full of horror and, like, pop culture shit. He literally bought a second house just to store all of his fucking comic books and collectibles and shit. Yes. Yeah, and he's into comic books. He's into video games. He sort of helped make a game. So he is... Best friends with Hideo Kojima. Yeah. <laughs> He's in fucking Death Stranding as a character. He directed PT, um, which we have brought up on the show. Yeah, dude is into anything, everything. He is an incredibly well-viewed film watcher. I appreciate him so much as a filmmaker, and he is maybe the filmmaker that I identify with the most. Now, I'm not saying that I have any more talent than like his fucking pinky toe. What I'm saying <laughs> is his sensibilities and the stories that he tells and how he tells them and his visual design. He is one of those filmmakers where he understands every aspect of the movie makes the movie. And he is concerned about all of those things. He is not one of these journeyman directors who just shows up does basic necessities of a director and then just everybody else handles their own shit from there. He understands that sound is important. Lighting is important. 
having the right production design is important. Hell, I love the fact, and this is how I have always kind of tried to train my brain when watching movies. His whole thing is the visual language of the movie is what you're fully, fully trying to take in and look at. And that is this gestaltic thing that is production design, it's costuming, it's cinematography, it's lighting, it's all that together. Any one of those things can't necessarily stand on its own. They all have to support each other in order for that to work. So he's always looking at these bigger picture ideas when he's making his movies, but that's what makes his movies so idiosyncratic and special. And I get people not necessarily liking all of his stuff, because guess what? Dude has fucking made really fucking classic high art gothic ghost stories like this that are foreign and have that pedigree mystique to them of art house cinema. He's made fucking Blade 2, right? <laughs> Which I love Blade 2, by the way. Yeah, oh yeah, Blade totally. 2 kicks ass. <laughs> he has made a fucking Godzilla movie with fucking robots and monsters fighting each other. He made Hellboy 1 and 2. <laughs> he made fucking uh, Haunted Carney movie. <laughs> Nightmare Alley, yeah. I like how you called it the Haunted Carney. <laughs> yeah, he, he made fucking... Lady falls in love with Fishman and they fuck the movie. <laughs> the creature from the Black Lagoon fucks a woman, the movie. Yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> I love Shape of Water, and it's one of those that it breaks my heart every time I hear people talk about, like, uh, it's one of the worst Best Picture winners in the last 20 years. Fuck off. That was a very good year for films, I will say. So, like, yeah. any of those movies that they had won, I could see, okay, there's a case, but, like, I fucking love that movie. And our boys, Ron Perlman and Doug fucking Jones, collaborate with him all the time, too. Constantly, right? What I appreciate, though, is his willingness to, like, be weird. And his willingness to, like, really, really push the envelope on how fucking deep in the fucking weirdness do we want to get. That's one thing I appreciate about all of his movies, is that they just fully go for broke on, let's just go all the way with this idea, and we'll make it work. Yeah, again, to that point, he's also on such a bandwidth that he can do that gothic horror art house like we're talking about, and then like nerd the fuck out and be yeah. like, I want to do Hellboy now, because I like that comic series. And not just that, but he's one of those filmmakers, John Carpenter's a good example of this. And James Cameron's another one. And oddly enough, James Cameron and Del Toro are like buds. I could see that. They yeah. can do every job behind the camera. If one thing needs to be done, they can go do it. If they need to do the cinematography or they need to line up a shot or they need to like do set dressing or they need to do makeup, they can fucking do it. They know how to do it. They have the skill set to do it and they have experience doing it. Again, they have that understanding that it takes all of this working at the same time. To that point, and this might be a false memory, I don't know if you remember this, Aaron, and I couldn't stay the whole time, unfortunately, but there was a night where we went all went over to your house, like a bunch of us gathered at your house, you put on Pan's Labyrinth, and I think I had to bail out an hour into it, unfortunately, but I can't remember if it was part of just the DVD release, or you had just played this on purpose. And Again, this is a false memory, I don't know if this is actually real. I feel like there was a moment, like, before the film begins, where Del Toro basically introduces the film and talks about how Pan's Labyrinth literally almost killed him, like putting all his heart and soul and time and physical body into making this film. I, I wouldn't doubt it. There are a lot of movies that have those old director intros to them. Yeah, and like he talked about like this movie almost legitimately cost me my life because I got deathly ill like either during or after filming it because I, I had put so much energy into it. You know, not to blow too much smoke up your ass, Aaron, but it is interesting. They talked about 
him being on the same wavelength as you because you do remind me in that regard that you can get as artistic and deep as you want to as far as your pop culture consumption goes you're very knowledgeable about movies you love Fellini the pasta I mean the filmmaker (laughs) but like you know all these classic films you can speak on them I'll sit and watch Tarkovsky but then I'll turn around and watch Troma yeah or like you throw on Star Wars and like you might know more about Star Wars than anyone I know with maybe the exception of our friend Ben granted you're not a huge video gamer but you play video games you read comics as well you do all this other stuff you understand that art doesn't have to be put in all these little boxes like art is art all these things serve different purposes to us and i think del toro is the same way i think he can be comic book entertaining and do a great job with that and then he can make something like this the devil's backbone which has a shit ton of stuff on its mind be it politics growing up coming of age as a boy dark fantasy etc etc yeah totally so i guess what was your first Del Toro movie? I'm going to guess and say probably either Blade 2 or Pan's Labyrinth. It was Blade 2, actually. Okay. Um, I saw Blade 2. I mean, I can tell you it might have been 2003, the summer of 2003. Like right, right when it came out. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it came out 2002 and I didn't catch it in theaters. But Sean Mars, again, shout out Sean Mars. He was on our Tremors episode, my childhood best friend. Me and him would always go to Blockbuster like every week during the summer and get new movies. And one of the movies we got was Blade 2 on DVD, and we watched it on his PS2. If, if we really want to like talk about how millennial I am, yeah, we watched Blade 2, the DVD, on his PS2. Um, and that was my first exposure to Blade 2, and my first exposure to Del Toro. Again, kind of a running theme with our show. I have still not seen Pan's Labyrinth start to finish in one sitting. I've seen half and half, or bits and pieces of it here and there. I'm hoping to rectify that with our podcast down the road. And then I actually, of all the movies, I saw Pacific Rim in theaters and I had a fucking blast with Pacific Rim. And I'm kind of surprised it's not talked about more still like in the upper echelon of kaiju movies. I think it is. The issue is just other than that one sequel that just completely belly flopped. There's just not been anything else of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think what's it was clear that Del Toro was not returning to that world. People kind of lost interest. Yeah. As much as I like what I've watched of Del Toro, I have actually not seen much of Del Toro, which is why I'm excited that we're slowly starting to dig into his filmography now because it's giving me the excuse to, and I, I shouldn't have to use our show to do that, but like it is at least a good excuse to finally like sit down sure. and watch more Del Toro. I think f- for me, I'm pretty sure Mimic was the first one that I saw. Mimic came out in the late 90s. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the late 90s or right around the year 2000 or so. It was fine. That is easily his weakest movie and for a variety of reasons that we'll kind of talk about briefly. But like most American boys, you know, around our age, I definitely saw Blade 2. And that made me then backtrack and say, okay, who the fuck is this guy? And Mm -hmm. realized, okay, I've seen Mimic. What is this movie, The Devil's Backbone? That movie was easily available. Um, I definitely remember renting it from our movie store at the time. So this was one that I saw maybe only two or three years after it came out. And so going into Hellboy, I kind of already knew, okay, it's this guy, right? Like he can do artsy, but he can also do comic booky. And by the time that Pan's Labyrinth came out and everybody was 
losing their minds over Pan's Labyrinth and how good it was. I was like, y'all are fucking catching up because, yeah, this guy's been doing good shit for a couple years now. And to that point, for maybe our younger listeners who are late millennials or even Gen Z, you have to understand, while Blade 2 was popular-ish, I really didn't even realize Del Toro had directed. I didn't know who Del Toro was until Pan's Labyrinth dropped. And Pan's Labyrinth dropped in 2006, tail end of high school for me and for you, Aaron, as well. Yeah. And granted, it dropped and was making waves actually post-Katrina, so I didn't even pay that much attention to it. But I saw that it exploded in American audiences, and like overnight, it seemed like Del Toro became a known name to Americans. But like, it's interesting because he put out what five movies prior to this, including Blade Two and Hellboy. And Kronos was his first one. Kronos was one that yeah. was a big international cult hit when it came out, but he didn't really do. Never mind. I'll jump back to that in a minute. I guess when we actually get into this. But like he had just put out Blade 2 and Hellboy, and granted, maybe as a teenager, I wasn't paying as much attention to movie news as I am now, but it felt like Pan's Labyrinth really put him on the map with American audiences, despite having done Blade 2 and Hellboy previously. Well, that was like the first big bona fide, legit, oh, this guy is actually making important movies, not just fun comic booky bullshit, you know? Yeah, but it's interesting to me that it even happened to teenagers and college age well yeah because it's definitely a film that is aimed at young people i feel like as is the devil's backbone honestly yeah. so like i said everyone was talking about pan's labyrinth even people our age at the time when it first dropped and that's kind of when he became at least in my mind an american known name but otherwise when you go back and actually look at his career like no he is well known, like you said, internationally, and he had been working like in he had been working for a film while in television in general for twenty years prior to that. By the way, was Mimic or Chronos specifically a Mexican horror movie? Chronos was, yes. Chronos was, yeah. That's a fascinating thing about Del Toro's. He was born and raised in Mexico, but as far as Pan's Labyrinth and the Devil's Backbone is concerned, it focuses on the Spanish Civil War uh, in Spain. And I'm sure we'll touch on why he decided to do yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get into why. So, I mean, to kind of give you some background on Del Toro, and this all leads into, like, how he got to this movie. A, early in life, he was raised by his grandmother, and she was the typical scary, super Catholic and super uh, strict grandma. Made him put fucking metal bottle caps in his shoes to, like, make him not a sinner, I guess. So, he kind of already had that childhood trauma, weirdness, authority thing right off the bat. But he started off making short films. They generally got more and more complex. He learned how to do technical effects, makeup kind of on his own, reading books, looking at videos. Gradually, his peers started reaching out to him to do their effects and makeup, which led him to like doing work on actual features. He produced and directed some TV shows back in the day. He founded his effects and makeup company, Necropia, in the early 80s. But he finally like called in all of his favors to make Kronos in 92. That's where he actually worked with Federico Lupi, who is one of the stars of this movie that we're discussing. And that's also where he crossed paths with Pedro Amodobar, who is maybe kind of the most famous modern Spanish filmmaker. He did Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Talk to Her, All About My Mother, Volver, The Skin I Live In, which we just brought up recently on the Eyes Without a Face episode. But yeah, Almodovar 
offered to produce his next movie if he would come to Spain. Again, Almodovar is kind of this product of the La Movida 80s era of Spain. His films were very heavy on focusing on sex and sexuality, art, creative freedom, liberation for women, queer folk, etc. There was kind of this whole post-Franco period in the 80s where, like, everybody in Spain just kind of fucking let loose finally. And that's where Almodovar came out of. So, being kind of one of the hotshot directors and producers and having a production company, he's always been good about kind of bringing young new filmmakers in under his wing. At the time, Del Toro had already committed to making Mimic at Miramax, which was ultimately a fucking disaster because, of course, he's dealing with the Weinsteins. Yeah. Slashed budgets at the last minute and scheduling problems, and he spent fucking two years in post on that movie. He lost Final Cut on that movie. Like, all in all, that was a fucking disaster for him, both professionally, personally. Like, he had a fucking bad time making that movie. I I was seeing that kind of influences on The Devil's Backbone. A lot of his more negative experiences and rage kind of also led to The Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Because... It was between that and whatever troubles he faced. I don't know if the the development, I don't think, on Kronos, from what I read, was nearly as bad, but he still faced, you know, certain scrutiny and and problems with that. Kronos was his first movie, and so it was very scrappy, very quick, and very, like, we're doing all this as quick and cheap as we can, and I'm calling it all my favors. But largely, he made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. Mimic was like, everything went fucking wrong. But like his experiences with Mimic and then right around all of that shit happening uh, was his father getting kidnapped in 1997. Yeah. I, I think those two pivotal moments in his life, like negative moments, are kind of some of the inspiration for The Devil's Backbone come into play. Along with, I know you kind of glanced over him being raised Catholic and kind of super Catholic uh, with yes. the, his grandmother. But his views on religion and Catholicism are interesting because they are mostly critiques and mostly criticisms. And he even admits this, like he still holds on to certain Catholicness, even though he's atheist, he says he's atheist. And you can see that through a lot of his work, especially in the devil's backbone. Like so many characters are religious in this movie. He isn't entirely disparaging of Christianity as a whole, which is interesting. It's what we've discussed several times on here. I think there's a difference between having your own personal spirituality and then like organized religion. And I think what he rails against more than anything is the organized religion aspect of it. Because so often as this movie deals with, it kind of falls hand in hand with fascism and those two things get co-opted and intermingled real quick and easy. And so I think for him again, like personal faith is a different thing than organized religion. To that point where we're on this religion tangent with him, Something I read, and this might have been straight off of the Wikipedia, I don't remember, but two things I want to note on that is, and this sounds horrifying to me, like something that influenced him becoming atheist was him seeing a pile of human fetuses when he was volunteering at a Mexican hospital. Yeah. And then having kind of the way he critiqued the Catholic Church complying with the fascism in Spain was having uh, one of the characters in his film quote an actual priest from the Republican faction, members who were in a concentration camp. Yeah, You're right. Maybe not necessarily personal spirituality, 
but the institutions of religion, specifically the Catholic Church, he is very critical on. Yeah. And again, he has outright said a part of Catholicism will always be with him just because he was raised that way. And I get that. Like, I was born and raised Catholic. Yeah. I'm no longer Catholic, but there's something about Catholicism that kind of stays with you throughout your life um, and influences things in ways that are unexpected. And for Del Toro, it's definitely his work, specifically this movie to me. Yeah. So post Kronos, he was developing a handful of different projects, including The Count of Monte Cristo with L.M. Kit Carson, fucking co-writer of Texas Chainsaw 2, which we discussed all of this (laughs) in our episode 100 with Patrick Bromley, which that totally explains the reference in The Devil's Backbone to Count of Monte Cristo, because that was just completely on his mind. And there's a lot of crossover between that story and this one. But that also explains his fucking weird cameo in Bullfighter, that fucking wild movie that I discussed where he and Robert Rodriguez have weird fucking cameos. So if you want to see Del Toro as a Mexican hitman with little round dark Dracula glasses and a black suit just spraying an Uzi through a Mexican town at Willem Dafoe, who is a monk. Cool, there's the movie for you. It is one of the worst things I've ever seen. While we're on the the topic of weird cameos, this is more of a positive one that I fucking love. He plays Pappy McPoyle, the head of the McPoyle clan, in two episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and he's fucking hilarious in it. Okay, it's time to get out of here. I mean, look at that guy. One of them babies tried to eat me. I ate him first. I ate him first. Yeah, I'm with Charlie. I'm leaving. During this same time, again, this is mid to late 90s, he turns down directing Hellraiser Bloodline, and he turns down directing End of Days. Man, Hellraiser Bloodline sounds like a good turn down, but I kind of would, oh, would love, love to a see Del Toro it. end of days. I would love to see a Del Toro version of either of those things, yes. No, I would love to see a Del Toro version of Hellraiser. It sounds like he would be limited in one of those sequels to Hellraiser. Well, sure, yeah. He would have had his budget chopped out from underneath him and interference from producers and everything else. Anyway, Del Toro's version of The Devil's Backbone was written before Kronos. Interesting. But would ultimately be completely reshaped once he partnered with Spanish critics Antonio Trishoras and David Munoz to evolve a script of theirs that they sent him for notes in 1997. And I believe it was just called The Bomb. Del Toro bought the rights to their script because he saw the potential in that, worked with Munoz for two years on the shooting screenplay, And again, this is all late 90s, so this was all like via email and phone calls and everything because, you know, he's in Mexico and they're in Spain. And he incorporated his unproduced original story into there. So it was a complete kind of synthesis of the two things. His original story was set at the end of the Mexican Revolution and featured these other monstrous kind of forms like a Christ with three arms and an evil mummy doctor, (laughs) and a black-eyed, red-skinned caretaker who was preying on the boys. Was he making Silent Hill? (laughs) Basically. I mean, he would be a good fit for fucking Silent Hill. 
The other script, the one that was written by Treshoris and Munoz, was set in a, like, generic Eastern European nowhere country during a generic war in no particular time frame. There was no specificity to it. And that is one of the things that is so fucking good about this movie and makes this movie work is that it is firmly 1939 in Spain during the fucking war in the middle of nowhere specifically in this orphanage. Like the fact that it is so hyper specific with where it's set is what makes this movie work. And this original screenplay again, just like it gets to a point where it's so generic that like nobody cares. You lose interest when it's that generic. There were the children. There was the specter of war. There was the bomb. There was the ghost child. But all the like interpersonal dealings between the adults, the characters of Casares and Carmen and Jacinto were all del Toro contributions. So this is where we're going to pivot. The fact that this is set during the Spanish Civil War is incredibly mm. fucking interesting. And I've always been fascinated yeah. by this idea. So del Toro experienced a similar thing growing up in Mexican schools to us in that the Spanish Civil War was just such an isolated struggle, which was massively overshadowed by the larger conflict of World War II, that it was just basically never discussed in school. We didn't learn about this in school. Did you learn about this in school? No, no. We, didn't, we didn't learn that at all. And to the point where even in this movie, Devil's Backbone, one of the characters says, who knows, maybe like England or France will finally get involved and stop this from happening. Yeah. And the other characters just like, fat chance. Yeah. We're isolated. Like, no one gives a shit. So, this was not something we were taught in school. Okay, hold on. I say that. Let me then insert the fact that I was very lucky to be in my Mississippi public school at a time where we still had access to some really interesting classes. One of which that I will forever be thankful that I was able to take was an AP European history class. So we got to take that instead of the generic world history and air quotes class that everybody else gets to take in 10th grade. That regular world history class is literally like, cool, we're going to spend a week talking about Egypt, and then we're going to spend a week talking about China. It's just so surface level, right? Because it's got to cover everything. This class was extremely interesting because it literally kind of starts with the fall of Rome and goes all the way through World War II. So I learned a little bit about the Spanish Civil War. Not a ton, but I knew enough about it that when this movie came out and I saw it, I like kind of knew some context, but it really took me like reading more about it on my own over the years. And then I just did another kind of deep dive into it and prep for this that I really kind of got a lot of it back in my head again. So again, Del Toro jokes that he only knew tangentially about it because during the 70s, Chevy Chase was making jokes about it on the weekly update on SNL. Oh, yes. And by the way, Franco is still dead. Well, after a long illness, General Alissimo Francisco Franco died Wednesday. Reactions from world leaders were varied. Held in contempt as the last of the fascist dictators in the West by some, he was also eulogized by others, among them Richard Nixon, who said, quote, 
General Frankel was a loyal friend and ally of the United States. He earned worldwide respect for Spain through firmness and fairness. Despite Franco's death and an expected burial tomorrow, doctors say the dictator's health has taken a turn for the worse. Our top story tonight, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. And now as a public service to those of our viewers who have difficulty with their hearing, I will repeat the top story of the day, aided by the headmaster of the New York School for the Hard of Hearing, Garrett Morris. <laughs> our top story tonight... Our top story tonight... Francisco Franco is still dead. Good night and have a pleasant... Good night tonight. and have a pleasant tomorrow. This just in from Spain, a medical team has announced that General Alissimo Francisco Franco is still valiantly holding on in his fight to remain dead. Still to come, Franco dead after this film message. Our top story tonight, General Alissimo Francisco Franco has been critically dead now for 11 weeks. And his doctors refuse to speculate on how long he can last in his present condition. Ah, uh, yes. Chevy Chase, known respecter of other races. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls is all about his experience being in the Spanish Civil War as like an ambulance driver and a, and a volunteer group. Man, that's intense. Yeah. <laughs> but Del Toro said that he learned about the war primarily because they were taught about the Spanish migration of immigrants from Spain to Mexico during that time. And the fact that, like, yeah, there was a huge influx of people from Spain to our country, and that's why they're all here now, but not necessarily the conflict itself. And that is something that, to this day, it's a touchy subject. It's a massively touchy subject in Spain. It's not like the American Civil War here, where we still have battlefields and monuments and, like, all this bullshit that people still go and see, and it's still discussed, and we still talk about it in school and all that. The Spanish Civil War, maybe it was just because of how bloody it was, how divisive it was, how fucked up it was, how just incredibly pointless it was, that they just don't fucking want to talk about it. There is no official record of how many people died during the conflict, because that is a massive controversy for both sides of the conversation to dig into, and people's families are torn apart. Friends, families, like everybody was fucking torn apart by this thing. They don't want to fucking talk about it. To that point, one of the things that kind of bothered is not the right word, but was sort of disturbing to feel while watching this is we're kind of starting to see the all the, the elements same of fascism. Shit, yes, here in the United States, everywhere, everywhere. Well, everywhere, but yeah, here in the states specifically with this goddamn culture war that's happening for no goddamn reason and people doubling down on anti-wokeness, which is the new thing to hear that this whole thing is kind of a touchy subject that sort of swept under the rug because it was in the end pointless. That's what kind of like disturbed me while watching this and thinking of the backdrop of what's going on in the world right now and what's going on specifically in our country. <laughs> going back to what, what the guy said in the mist, fundamentally as a species were broken or whatever he says like and i think why the devil's backbone was so effective for me is the idea of seeing it through a child's eyes because again then like me seeing it through autumn's eyes my daughter's eyes and then even thinking back of 
we were kind of around the age of the boys in this movie, or at least the oldest boy, when like 9-11 happened. That basically permanently broke our society. Yeah. Well, we had to witness that through like the eyes of being children still. Those kind of feelings were kind of bubbling up in me as I was watching this in ways I wasn't expecting. It's interesting, too, how 9-11 kind of connects to, like, the release of this movie, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, because this was 2001. Yeah. Yeah, it is one of those major turning points where, because of that incident, there was just all of a sudden this slow pivot and this gradual snowball that's been building up, you know, over the last 20 fucking years. And now we're at a point where, like, half the fucking country is just wallowing in full-blown fascism, and a lot of them don't even realize it. But ultimately, what Del Toro started to realize was that many of the creatives that he admired in Mexico, right? So like Bunuel, perfect example, had all come from Spain and were escaping the conflict there. Actors, writers, critics, there were just a lot of people that he looked up to and admired and just did not realize, oh, that's your background. He became friends with Emilio Garcia Riera, who was a well-known Mexican film historian, but his family had escaped the war. And through his friendship with Riera and talking to his family and everything is where he learned about the conflict, largely. One of the major movies about this subject that made a massive, massive impact on him that he has spoken about repeatedly, because it's come up with so many of his other movies, is the Victor Ariche movie Spirit of the Beehive. Año 1940. Un pueblo cualquiera de la meseta castellana. El espíritu de la colmena. Una visión sensitiva y poética del mundo de los niños y de su aislamiento en el interior de la familia y la sociedad. This is also a Criterion release. It's been available for years. I'm guessing you have seen it. Yes. Yeah, I fucking love this movie, too. It is about, again, kind of his whole approach to storytelling and this idea of how the real world and the fantasy world can kind of blend together through youthful innocence, right? The movie is about a little girl growing up in her village in Spain during the war. And the movie is not about the war. The war is just happening in the background. It's happening around this little girl. She goes to see a movie at a little like pop-up theater, essentially, that her village makes. And they show Frankenstein. And she just becomes fucking fixated on the monster and starts to kind of believe that it's real and all that kind of blends together with the things that she's seeing in real life. And eventually she encounters this wounded soldier and kind of equates him with the monster and things kind of go from there. But that entire idea of, again, seeing and processing all this shit through the eyes of a child where they don't understand what's going on in the real world. They don't understand like the shit that's actually happening, the weight of it, the decisions that are being made, the concepts that are being fought over, like all of that is just as real to them as the fucking Frankenstein monster. Del Toro was working on the script to this movie 
during his father's kidnapping in 1997, which you mentioned, which, by the way, James Cameron helped secure the ransom for that whole thing. Really? Yeah. They're buds. They've been buds for a long time. Regardless, I'm not going to get deep into that story. It is a fucking wild story that he has talked about many times. They got his father back. He's fine. Go check out that story. I read a little bit about it and I watched a little bit of an interview on it and I want to kind of go back and watch more and it is crazy. But like, yeah, yeah, this is kind of one of those moments where like do your own research, but definitely like look into that because it's harrowing and interesting and you know, good on James Cameron, man. Yeah. I've talked a lot of shit about James Cameron. Big Jim. And especially like with Avatar, but like that's a good bro move. So yeah, the Toro was writing Monte Cristo in the morning, Devil's Backbone in the afternoon. And then dealing with the fucking hostage negotiators and police and kidnappers in the evening for like three months nonstop, right? How much has that got to fuck with you? Yeah. Anyway, he eventually reached back out to Almodovar after the Mexican Film Institute completely rejected his proposal for Devil's Backbone. They basically just said, this is too big and ambitious and expensive. No, we're not going to do it. Almodovar didn't hesitate and was just like, yeah, come on over. Me and my brother will set you up and we'll get going. And his experience working with Almodovar was the complete fucking opposite of working in Hollywood and working with Miramax and the wine scene specifically. Like being a director, Almodovar was completely fucking hands off unless he was needed. Final Cut was never a question. That's good. How many times are you told like never meet your heroes? But in this case, he met his hero and it actually was like a great experience. I read something too where Del Toro was like, cool, and I definitely want Final Cut. And Amortibar was just like, what do you mean? What? What is Final Cut? And he's like, yeah, I want Final Cut. I want like the final decision making for the movie and the edit and everything. He's like, the fuck? What? Why would I not give you that? Right? Why is that even a thing <laughs> that like you would not have that creative freedom? This is your movie. What the fuck? Welcome to working with the Weinsteins. Yeah. Welcome to working in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he provided Del Toro a larger budget than he had ever taken for any of his own films. And uh, Del Toro said since he has always tried to kind of provide that same freedom and experience to every other director that he's taken under his wing and produced work for over the years. And he's produced a ton. Yeah, he's a, a big time producer and he takes a lot of chances on people like yeah. and some of the stuff sometimes it doesn't work some out. Some of the stuff doesn't work. Yeah, but he still does it like he still goes on. The rest of the funding for the movie actually came from. Alfonso Cuaron's production partner, Jorge Vergara, who was the nephew of a well-known producer who had made a ton of El Santo movies in Mexico. And fucking Del Toro was a huge El Santo fan and immediately got along with Vergara for like for that reason, which if you don't know, El Santo is luchadora wrestler. It was all these fun serial movies from the 70s. They're fucking awesome. Again, Del Toro showing his nerdum. <laughs> yeah. So... There was some skepticism from the Spanish crew toward this Mexican director and his crew, but obviously that was all kind of settled when it became clear that they knew what they were doing. And kind of the main thing, again, because this is a movie about the Spanish Civil War, there was a lot of, "Mm, what are you doing, right? Coming to Spain to make this movie. Was there backlash on Spain? There wasn't like hard and firm backlash from everything that I have read about this movie. But there was just definitely a little bit of, are we sure we trust you to like tell the story? <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't even like talking about it, right? Yeah. So that's kind of a good point to pivot. And let's actually talk about the war itself just to do a little bit of context. Again, I feel like this is important. 
They don't fucking teach this in American schools. It's a part of history that gets largely overlooked because of World War II being so much bigger. Just in the context of this movie, it's super important. Absolutely. I would make that argument right there with you. Like, again, just kind of the idea of Del Toro. We'll touch even more on his childhood specifically uh, in regard to this movie, but just Del Toro the man. A lot of who he is and where he came from is in this movie. And then a lot of the historical political shit that's going on in the backdrop of this movie is important to talk about. And like, I wanted to say one more thing kind of before we dive into the Spanish Civil War and just do a quick run through again. Aaron and I are two Americans who got educated in the South. So like, we're going to do our best here. There's kind of like just like Under the Shadow, which I would say that a good horror pairing would be The Devil's Backbone and Under the Shadow because there's a lot of similar things going on, fantastical horror happening in the eyes of a child in the backdrop of political war turmoil that is not well known to at least Westerners. But just like Under the Shadow, we talked a lot about the conflict going on in that movie. Let's get into the Spanish Civil War for this movie. Yeah, and again, I know this conflict is very touchy and It's very complicated. It's a four-year conflict that was 40 years in the making. European politics are like way fucking more crazy complicated than American politics in a lot of ways. So like, going to do our best here, obviously. Spain specifically, perhaps, has the fucking messiest back and forth political history of any European nation. The country has been a monarch, a democratic republic, a dictatorship. The war itself was this weird struggle of classism, democracy versus dictatorship, religion versus secularism. Like it wasn't just about one thing. It was not about territory. It was not about a resource. This was fully a fucking war of ideals. The American Civil War, also fucking messy, fucking bloody. You can at least say it fucking boils down to slavery. It's easy to at least kind of narrow that down. Uh, States rights. It's not about fucking states rights. It's about slavery. It was about the state's right to keep slaves. Like, it's about slavery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's such a bullshit excuse. (laughs) Yeah. Right. This war was so much more complicated because it wasn't just about one thing, you know? So it's hard to kind of pin down. To give you an idea, I glanced over like cliff notes of it and like kind of looked at the quick facts on wikipedia and elsewhere and even then my eyes still glazed over yeah because there's just so much going on into with this conflict so i'm not going to get like super deep into the background of it other than to like give some context to like where this leads up to so again this is kind of considered to be like the final closing conflict of world war one but also kind of the opening act of World War II. Yeah, like a weird transition. Just where it fits in, it is absolutely this weird lead into World War II. And many of the tactics that were used during World War II, like bombing, propaganda, misinfo, all this shit, was all really field-tested during this fucking Civil War. Because guess what? The fucking fascists were being aided directly by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, the fucking bad guys of World War II were directly aiding the bad guys of this situation. So they were a monarchy. King Alfonso Thirteenth basically used all of his family connections to keep Spain 
out of World War One. Alfonso was really only in power because there was like this forced return to monarchy in the 1870s, but it was clear that like the country was moving in a different direction and that was away from monarchy. They had this informal system called Alterno Pacifico, which essentially like you had a king, but then there was actually still a like functional government. And the whole idea was it's not like in the US where there's two parties and fuck you, there's dozens of political parties that are constantly shifting and forming coalitions and dissolving and everything else, right? So the whole idea of this was basically the two biggest parties on the left and the right would essentially get together behind closed doors and kind of decide in a handshake way, like who's actually going to win the election and take power. And it was just kind of agreed that there would be this back and forth alternation each election. The right-wing party kind of takes power for a couple of years, and then it switches to the left-wing party, blah, blah, blah. That obviously all falls apart post-World War One because the people and the government's sympathies are kind of all split along these pro-German and pro-Entente lines, right? Like, the country is literally split over what's happening in all these other countries in this larger conflict that they have stayed out of. There was a coup in 1923 where the leftist government was overthrown by a right-wing group. The king, Alfonso, basically just said, cool, whatever, I'm going to look the other way. And after that administration completely face-planted, the king stripped power from that right-wing group and said, let's just forget everything that happened the last couple of years and start over. That burned the last bit of political capital that he had, and he was basically kicked out in 1931. So now, no more kings. Then it was clear during that election, that 100% the people were choosing to reject the monarchy, to the point that the right and left-wing groups actually fucking allied together with the Pact of San Sebastian to fucking kick out the monarch. Interesting. So this then moved to a more modern system called the Second Spanish Republic. The new prime minister, Manuel Azaña, his new government would draft the constitution, focusing on modernizing the country basically through state-assisted agriculture, stronger protections for national industries and small businesses, progressive tax reform, a huge public works program, more self-governance for the Catalan region, and schools would no longer be run by religious organizations. Some of that stuff was also happening here in the U.S. during the same time. I mean, the WPA and all the Roosevelt era New Deal stuff. The Constituent Assembly, which is essentially like their parliament, their Congress, they knew that the right-wing parties were going to try to seize power during the election. So they purposely left their session in this weird limbo where none of the right-wing party that won the election could actually take their cabinet positions. And it just left it to where the prime minister, who was from the leftist party, could just executive, executive, executive all this shit into happening with no real opposition. There was also big backlash against the Catholic Church during this time. Fucking churches were burned, clerics were killed, lots of bad shit happening there too. During the 1933 elections, the largest right-wing group, which again, these all have different fucking names, and this is also one of those concepts too where like, there's not just a Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, there's like a ton of groups allying together and forming factions and yeah, yeah, yeah. The U.S. right, the Republicans, the GOP, largely the same, largely homogenous, largely white, male, Christian, 
very homogenous. There are obviously outlying kind of smaller groups that have their own weird peccadilloes. The thing with the Democratic Party is it's everybody else. And there's a ton of different viewpoints and there's a ton of different pet focuses. And that's a lot of the reason why nothing can ever actually get fucking done because the Democrats literally encompass everybody else in the country. But imagine if there was literally just an entire fucking party that was just a like workers union party. There was an entire legitimate party that was just an anarchy party. There's an entire fucking party that is just a like farmers agrarian united party. It's that hyper specific. Technically, there are in the United States. It's just that they're like so insignificant. They'll never uh, like the third biggest party, I think, is what the Libertarian Party. And they amount to like two percent. There is a Libertarian Party. There is a Green Party. And they're like one percent. Yeah, they don't fucking yeah. matter for shit. And so much of like what they do lines up with the other two parties anyway, that everything just overlaps and it's not a big deal. But in the Spanish lead up to the Civil War, there were... Like most European countries, like most modern countries, guess what? There are a ton of different political parties, yeah. And this is where, like, on one hand, yeah, I wish we had more options in the U.S. I wish we had a truly progressive liberal left-wing party and not filled with fucking corporate Democrats who were selling out to Amazon. Anyway, during the 1933 elections, the largest right-wing group won the majority, but the newest president, Alcala Zamora, blocked the right-wing party's leader from setting up the new government and taking cabinet positions, and instead invited the left-wing group's leader to take power, just blatantly ignoring the results of the election. After a year of pushing, the right-wing group was able to take their cabinet positions, which angered a lot of the extreme leftist groups. Again, when we say extreme leftist groups, we're not talking about your Bernie Sanders and your AOC in America, like that is the most middle of the road shit in most European countries by comparison. We're talking like actual full blown capital A anarchists. We're talking actual capital C red communists, that extreme end. Those groups all opted to strike, lead a national labor strike and a workers' revolution. This lasted two weeks. And despite calls for moderation from all the leaders in the party, all these leftist extremists murdered dozens of businessmen, clergy, police before being brutally exterminated by the army. And this is 30 people were killed. And then the army came in and murdered 500 people as retaliation. Wow. And that's kind of the thing that happens so often in these situations. Oh, a right-wing leader is assassinated, cool, we're going to then show up to this town and murder 300, you know, left-wing people that we rounded up in the town square. Like, there is a gross kind of overreaction that tends to happen. A new election was called for in January 1936. And again, fearing a huge right-wing takeover and coup, several of the leftist groups all formed a coalition called the Popular Front to stand in opposition to this new right-wing coalition the Nationalist Front. So now you have kind of what we have in America, where like all the left-wing, right-wing groups are just coalescing into these two big juggernaut groups. And the moderate centrist parties just disappeared. All right, Now you are firmly either Popular Front or your Nationalist Front. The leftist Popular Front was workers' groups, unionists, socialists, communists, anarchists, secularists, 
when we say left wing, right wing, it's the most extreme. Right wing nationalists were fascists, monarchists, religious conservatives, aristocratic traditionalists, all led by a military junta. So the populists won. There had always been suspicion since that is still controversial that there might have been election fraud that may or may not have made a difference whether or not they won. Regardless, violence erupted from all the people on the right who assumed that they were going to win, and the right-wing leaders called for a monarchist coup that didn't actually happen, and then they called for a military coup, which didn't actually happen, all to, like, quell the violence. Yes, let's just stop the violence that's happening with more violence, and oh, by the way, we're the ones that are causing the violence. (laughs) Again, in America here, hmm, the party of law and order ironically, was the one to uh, storm the Capitol, just saying. Yeah, Jan 6, yep. Yeah. To that point, too, like to bring it back to the devil's backbone for a second, we are seeing this through the eyes of leftists during the Spanish Civil War, and to the point where one of the caretakers of the orphanage, it sounds like he was an older freedom fighter, but he was kind of a freedom fighter, and he's a poet. He's a doctor, but he's also a poet, and They even kind of touch on that, that the leftist side of this conflict was filled of these passionate, poetic, anarchist, workers' rights type of people, where the movie kind of gives you a touch of the historical aspect of this movie, I think, is is interesting in that grounded way of like, who are these characters? Where do they come from? The caretaker of the entire orphanage is this woman who has lost a leg. Her husband was this revolutionary leftist figure who died. And it sounds like he died for his ideals and left her behind to run this orphanage full of kids whose parents or families are either gone or were killed in this conflict. It's fascinating to see this, how this is playing out, because it's towards the tail end and it's a doomed situation anyway. But yeah, just wanted to bring that back to the movie for a second. And I think, too, Del Toro, you know, obviously, just knowing his personal beliefs and looking at any of his movies, he is 100% siding with the leftists. All of his movies, to some degree or another, are about pushing back against fascism. He is obviously critical of that. He is critical of institutions that kind of co-opt and lead into and kind of groom young people into fascism. What I think is interesting is this movie is also still pretty critical of those two older characters, Carmen and Dr. Casares. Mm-hmm. They are it is exactly the fucking establishment Democrats that we have in the U.S. now. She is fucking physically enfeebled, and he is impotent. You can't get more fucking blatant than that in terms of you did not have what it takes to stop this conflict. You did not go far enough. You didn't stop this when you could have stopped this. Their time has come. And so both of them as older people are now looking back on this with regret and with frustration and anger. You know, Carmen is frustrated with her husband because he was too much of a fucking idealist. You know, you get the sense that he had opportunity to act and chose to take the high road, right? How often do we fucking hear that right now from the Democrats that we just need to take the high road and You know, you have that on one side of like, we have to take a higher rate to be better than this. But then you also have a lot of people who won't fucking vote for Dems when it comes down to it because fucking Joe Biden doesn't pass whatever their bullshit purity test is. Yet the other option is literal full blown fascism, right? That's what's frustrating now is 
so much of what's happening in U.S. politics is definitely mirroring what we're seeing with this. Anyway, ultimately, the Popular Front won the election, but they wouldn't form a government from the Popular Front. Because again, it's made up of all these groups that fundamentally don't agree on like the finer details. Manuel Azania, who was the new prime minister again, began forming this kind of new center-left government body before the electoral process was even finished. They freed all these political prisoners who had been put in jail earlier, and they started undoing a lot of the right-wing stuff that had happened in the previous years. But then all these extreme leftist anarchists started rioting, all of which caused the right-wing groups to coalesce against the left, right? So, like, the most extreme end is now literally, like, burning buildings and tearing up railways and everything else. And if we know anything from the last couple of years in America, boy, oh boy, does the right fucking love when a target gets burned. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just put that together in my head. Yeah. In July, a leftist militia leader was assassinated by one of the various right wing groups. And in response, the Minister of the Interior ordered the arrest of various right wing parliament members. One of those leaders was murdered during this event, and the government essentially acted as if nothing happened. So now you have this state-sanctioned murder of an opposition leader. That was the fucking final catalyst that led to the military generals all saying, like, yo, we need to fucking take power. And the coup happened three days later. And it was not a successful coup because most of the major cities, including Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, Bilbao and Malaga all remain loyal to the Second Spanish Republic and the leftist Republicans. And again, yes, Republicans, but these are the leftists in Spain. Guess what? Liberal conservative don't mean the same things here that they do in the rest of the world. And the party names obviously follow suit. So right off the bat, you have this military coup, but then half the country doesn't go along with it. God, what a fucking clusterfuck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So after the initial military leaders who all first started this coup were all fucking killed, General Franco took power, and he had been kind of sitting in the background of all of this for a while. This was the opportunity where, like, he took power and led the Spanish Army of Africa from Morocco, because, again, Morocco was controlled by Spain at this time, to the mainland and took control of most of the south and west of Spain, leaving tons of fucking bloody purges all along. Like, thousands of people were fucking murdered during this time. Man, no wonder there were a lot of orphans then. Yeah. Franco's nationalists were fully supported and aided, again, by Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Portugal, and would in turn support Hitler during World War II by providing supplies and resources that were crucial to their war effort. So right off the bat, Franco is fully being backed 100% in the open publicly by the fucking Nazis, by the Axis powers. The Republicans were aided by the USSR and Mexico, and then this international brigade, which was volunteers from all over the place, right? But the other major allied forces at the time... UK, France, the US wasn't in World War II yet, keep that in mind, but the war was kind of already starting. But the UK, France, and then the US provisionally agreed to just completely ignore what was happening as part of the non-intervention committee. And their whole idea was, let's keep Spain out of the larger war 
by keeping them isolated and none of us getting involved. Even though the Axis powers were fully fucking backing Franco, the Allies were like, nah, let's just not make the war bigger. Let's just stay out of this. So, again, I mentioned the international brigades. Despite the official stance of these non-interventionist nations, tens of thousands of people from all over the world joined this international brigade. Hemingway, again, was part of this. George Orwell participated in this group. They both wrote major works about their experiences there. Hell, this all kind of directly led into Orwell writing 1984. That contextualizes the scene where the doctor goes into the town and the leftists are being executed. And one of them... And they say that they're from all over the place. Yeah, yeah one's a Canadian, one's somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. So where things fully fucking shifted is the nationalists won a major victory at the Battle of Alcazar, and the Republican forces just kind of slowly eroded and fell apart and lost territory from that point on. The bombing of Guernica by the nationalists and Nazi forces, literally the fucking Nazis and the nationalists bombed this city. That was one of the more infamous moments of the conflict, obviously Picasso's famous painting is all specifically capturing that moment. Barcelona fell in early 1939. France and the UK officially recognized the new Franco government. And then Madrid fell in March. At that point, it's done. Franco coalesced all the right-wing political groups under his leadership. Meanwhile, there was a coup within what remained of the Republicans in an effort to, like, call peace with Franco. Jesus. <laughs> and Franco even said, fuck you, no peace. Done. Franco has full power of the country. World War II starts, and everybody is fucking paying attention to World War II from that point on. Despite the end of World War II, the Allied forces still chose to leave Franco in power. Wow. As a check against Russia. Wow. Franco's regime would go on to commit various bloody purges of opposition members. I fucking bet they did, yeah. Thousands of Republican refugees would flee to France and Mexico. Franco would remain in power until his death in 1975. The final death toll, again, is massively controversial in Spain. Because, again, and, and this is a stance that I fucking hate, but it kind of does apply here. I hate the entire excuse of, well, both sides are just as bad. No, one side wants fucking health care and to, like, fix the fucking environment and put stronger protections in for jobs and, you know, universal protections for all people. And the other side wants to, like, basically roll over your front door and say, no, fuck you. No. One side is literally calling to put trans and queer people in camps, and the other side is just like, hey, leave us alone. They're not the same. In this case... Again, we have the most extreme left-wing, right-wing, and all these various factions, all murdering people. There were massacres all over the fucking country, both sides massacring everybody. Like, it's a super touchy subject over there because there was not a clear-cut reason for any of this to occur. Again, there was no fight over territory. There was no fight over a specific cause this was literally just a fucking conflict against people who want power and will take that power no matter what it fucking costs and no matter who they have to step over along the way this is just a pure 
exercise against fascism. And that's what's so fucking aggravating about this entire conflict and why it's still so touchy is that there was not a clear-cut conflict beyond the fascists wanted to take power and the leftists basically just wanted to survive. There was not really a whole lot more to it than that. Estimates range from 250,000 people dead on the low end to over a million, with the vast majority of these murders being committed by the nationalists. Again, it was like a one to five kind of ratio. Again, when you have the military on your side, guess what? Real easy to fucking roll over people. And again, this all kind of goes back to this idea in this movie that all of these agreed upon rules, these factions, these political parties, these beliefs, it's all bullshit. It's all created out of thin air. It's just as fucking fake as borders and money and religion and like all these other bullshit things that we fight over, right? The cause of conflict within society, it's all just as fantastic and scientifically fictional as ghosts and fawn and kaiju and everything else. So to like a kid, it all just blurs together, right? And that's so much of what this movie and Pan's Labyrinth are about and how they're exploring these concepts. When you look at it that way, it really does kind of help your adult brain break out of, you know, where it is and kind of realize, yeah, most of what we fucking fight about is bullshit. Yeah. So like with the devil's backbone, because that's very much what it feels like. It feels like two stories are happening simultaneously. You have the adult's story and their subplots all happening while these kids that are underneath their watch are having this dark, fantastical adventure that's in the backdrop of a war. Yeah. And all of it is just as tragic and important and crazy and whatever as the actual war that's going on. A ghost haunting this orphanage to the kids, or at least to the main kid, is just as as important as this bomb could blow up on us or bombs could get dropped on us or the right wing people could reach the orphanage and slaughter us all. Like, And you're right, while the adults are more concerned about that stuff, the war, the violence, the kids are like doing, not Goonies-esque adventure, but you know, they're dealing with a ghost story. I find that fascinating, and I, I think it's interesting that this takes place during the final year of the Spanish Civil War, and we are seeing it from the viewpoint of the leftists, or at least leftists that are running this orphanage for children whose parents are either killed or abandoned, because you have that looming specter of the war slowly reaching the orphanage along with the actual specter of this child that's haunting the orphanage. Yeah. And that's why I drew that comparison of Under the Shadow, because you also had that looming specter of war in that movie, also manifesting literally in a supernatural being. I think another thing that's important to realize, again, this was a war where families were fighting families, neighbors were fighting neighbors, friends were no longer friends. There were thousands of orphans as a result of this, because whole families were being murdered. It's not like all of the 20th century U.S. conflicts where a whole generation of men go off to war, some of them come back, some of them come back but not really, dot, dot, dot. And then you still have kids that are here that are, you know, fewer orphans. You have more mothers that were left behind with their kids. This was like if mommy and daddy are going to war and they're all being killed, you know, like. This is the entire family. This is aunts. This is uncles. This is grandparents. There were so many fucking orphans as a result of all these families being killed in a way that U.S. conflicts have never really 
generated in the same way. There were thousands of orphans that were just shuttled over to England and were all just placed in homes with English families for years. A lot of them like ended up going back to Spain later. Just the fact that there were that many that they just didn't have anywhere to put them. And to that point, like where men and women were basically fighting this war. Yeah. The minister of the entire orphanage, this woman, Carmen, who is almost bossing around all the men around her, including the revolutionaries that show up at the beginning with Carlos, she is missing a leg. Yeah. And like, again, her husband was this revolutionary idealist fighting in this war, too. Kind of going back to what's being shown on screen, like the art of filmmaking. Just those little things could teach you a little bit about just the conflict itself. Men and women are both fighting this. It's a losing battle at this point. They're trying to do all this and that. And just the simple way to show that is she's missing her leg. The doctor's impotent. Like you said, they both have all these regrets, but they're still kind of weirdly, at least the doctor is kind of holding on to this romantic idealism a little bit too in the face of utter destruction. And like, what are they going to do when the right wing soldiers reach the orphanage? What's going to happen? Are the children going to be taken away? Are the children going to be slaughtered? I will say normally, I really hate the like, just a friend male character and stuff, because usually they're just completely fucking toxic and petulant in a weird way. Yeah, it's like friend TM or like nice guy TM. Yeah. Yeah. But Casaris in this movie brings kind of this tragic resignation to that character that's tough to not side with. Again, like the unrequited love part of like both of them are tired. They're just fucking tired of fighting and dealing with this. They are pushing everything else to the side because they have to fucking focus on these kids. And so none of their like own personal shit really matters that much, you know? And Dr. Casarius is fully aware that Carmen is fucking the younger caretaker. Yeah. And while it hurts him, they're both still there for each other in a way that it seems like one can't live without the other, or at least manage this orphanage without the other. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he still gets up every morning and reads the poem to her through the wall, you know, like there is something there between them and they just can't act on it. Even like the small things like them kind of hooking their pinkies together. Like those are like the little interpersonal things that they have to have to get through this conflict. Yeah. I guess too, while we're discussing them specifically, Casares is played by Federico Lupi, who is basically the be all end all Argentinian greatest actor. Del Toro (laughs) actually wrote this role and the role in Kronos specifically for him. So he is one of those greatest actors from a whole segment of cinema that most people aren't even aware of, but he's in the romance of Enesito and Francisca, Chronicle of a Lady, Time for Revenge, Soberdosis. He shows back up in Pan's Labyrinth in a small role as well. He's also in a pretty fucking cool thriller called Fermat's Room from several years back. Marissa Paredes, who plays Carmen, She was kind of one of the major faces of that La Movida era that I mentioned earlier. She was one of Almodovar's first muses. She normally played these kind of wild and energetic characters. But it's interesting that Del Toro then takes her and literally fucking kneecaps her, you know, for this role. Yeah, and puts her in a very somber, like, again, tired role. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because it brings that longing and kind of that regret to life in an interesting way. 
literally like kind of playing on her actual real life persona and career and flipping all that around was a very interesting choice. She, again, was in a lot of Al Motobar's early stuff. She's in Dark Habits, In a Glass Cage, High Heels, The Flower of My Secret, Life is Beautiful, All About My Mother, and she was also in The Skin I Live In. We mentioned it a couple times already. The Bomb is such an interesting piece of iconography from this movie. Besides the ghost itself, because again, the ghost design is so interesting and creepy and eerie, but yeah, the other thing that is also eerie in a different way is just the bomb sitting in the courtyard of this orphanage just yeah. there to the point where like some of the boys are like knocking on it, which doesn't seem safe. Well, not just knocking on it, but I, I love that it's like a shrine. Yeah. You see, they've put stones around it and they have all these little like flowers and things kind of around it. It's like this weird, it's a shrine. That's all I can think of. It's like this weird totem that's this constant reminder of the war that's going on far off somewhere else. It's rusty. It has been there seemingly forever, but it, you know, has just kind of become this thing that's now in their lives day to day. Why I go back to the comparison to Under the Shadow and why I think this would be a great pairing uh, with the Devil's Backbone is in Under the Shadow, it's implied that the rocket that comes in and gets stuck in the apartment building is what brought the gin with it. Yeah. Whereas in this movie, and even some of the boys at first, I think the bully, one of them says, oh, the bomb brought the spirit. But you find out later on, and I'm going to spoil like, one of the things which it's not really a twist because like they show it in the beginning of the fucking movie a child is killed in cold blood by the caretaker then his friend discovers him the bully wait wait, you're you're talking about this movie yeah yeah and and so in the devil's Devil's backbone Backbone. so no at the beginning you are shown that a child is killed yeah but you are not necessarily shown how you assume that there was a fight, there was a struggle, the kid is bleeding out of his head, he's on the ground. Yeah, maybe I just, I knew it. I saw it a thousand miles away of who actually sure. did it, so maybe I'm just taking that for granted. But Yeah, you also assume that it's Jaime who killed him, that this kid's friend yeah. is the one who, like, murdered him, and obviously we learned that, no, everything that we saw at the beginning, completely recontextualized by the end, and we know the truth of what actually happened, right? You know, so, like, even those opening moments are kind of this weird signpost of where things are going and this bomb is kind of a signpost in the same way yeah by the way uh trigger warning or at least i guess horror warning uh children get murdered in this movie oh totally yeah it starts off with a child death and later on there's an explosion that kills like half the fucking orphanage so just fyi yeah i mean guess what war's fucked up lots of kids die in war unfortunately that's just the reality of war and that's why it's fucked up that's why it's so, like, honestly more horrifying to me than the literal ghosts in this movie. And, like, what Del Toro is so great about capturing in this and in Pan's Labyrinth is he shows children being so innocent and so, like, what's the difference between a ghost and the concept of violence? Yeah. And then violence still happens to them, despite them being pure and innocent. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, it feels like the bomb should be this Chekhov's gun. But it never actually detonates. No. You think, oh, all these kids are going to be fine. You would never kill kids, right? Kids are going to be safe. Nah. Well, guess what? This bomb also never actually detonates. It just remains. 
Yeah, really, when it boils down to the explosion is caused by greed, and it's not from the bomb. It's from the caretaker. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, again, kind of thinking about American history in a similar context, the bomb reminds me a lot of fucking Confederate statues and all this shit that still exists as this kind of reminder of an egregious wrong that was done fucking over 100 years ago. And you just have to live with and exist around that and constantly be reminded of it. And it won't just fucking explode and go away. You know, like it's just kind of this constant signpost that you live your entire life around. And you always remember, like in the center of town, there's a fucking Robert E. Lee statue or whatever, you know, and that thing just stays there. And it's interesting, too, because likewise, Santi, the ghost boy, doesn't leave either. Even after the end of the movie, when he kind of gets his revenge in a roundabout way, he's still stuck there. He's still trapped. We still see him like floating above the cistern. Casaris doesn't fucking leave. He basically says exactly like, I'm never going to leave here. This is it. Cool. And he doesn't. He's stuck at the doorway watching the boys leave as a ghost. Yeah. That's how the movie ends. Jacinto's photos also remain floating in the water above him. Everything is like the fetus. It's all just trapped forever in this state. It's the bug in amber, right? It's like exactly the poem that he delivers at the beginning of the movie in the narration. Yeah, what a good bad guy in such a, like, you are such a fucking evil asshole, but at the same time, you're still clinging to this tragic childhood notion of your parents and being accepted. But this is what happens when that gets twisted into greed and growing up and being neglected. And because he's a young adult, it's applied like what he's in his 20s. But like he was also an orphan in this orphanage. This is also an examination of proto-fascism. This is how it all starts. And that's one thing, again, that I love about Del Toro's stuff. And I've brought it up on the show so many other times. Uh. Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crooks, Harrow County is another example that I love of this, where like the monsters that you see in front of you, the ghost, the goblin, whatever it is, that's not what you should be afraid of. Matter of fact, they almost always exist as some kind of test to the main character or to be some kind of warning or offer guidance. They're not just there to be monsters and mindlessly destroy. The monsters are so rarely actually the monster. The monster is usually always some human. It's always some other character in the story. It's always some corporate evil villain. It's always some just complete fascist nutbag. It is some larger institution, right? Like it's rare that the monster itself is the thing. So in this case, Santi, the ghost boy, he's not the threat. He's never the threat. It's never implied that he is the threat. Matter of fact, Carlos... Carlos runs from him. Like, he's scared. Yeah, it runs from him and gets chased by him, but I think it's Santi trying to reach out to Carlos. It is. Rather it than, absolutely is. Yeah. It's just one kid who is trying to, like, say hey to another kid. And, you know, Carlos is scared, but it very much turns around very quick and just says, so who are you? What do you want? You're here. You clearly aren't trying to hurt me. So, like, what do you need? And it takes a kid to, like, have that openness and not immediately completely lock it off and say, this is the enemy. We have to move on, you know? 
Yeah, and and the first warning he gets from Santi is many of you will die, which is yeah. what happens in the kitchen when he causes the explosion. Well, he doesn't cause the explosion, but No, not yeah. Santi. Jacinto causes it. And then like the second thing is he tells Carlos bring me Jacinto because that's when we'll reveal that he's the one who led to Santi's death. And what ultimately leads to Jacinto's death, not only him being pulled down by Santi, but the gold weighing him down into the water. It's simple storytelling, but he's basically killed by his own greed at the end of the day. Yeah. But then like the floating pictures of like his parents, the one thing he kept from the safe of what was otherwise junk to him was the pictures of his parents. Yeah. Just to remind you that like, despite him doing all this evil shit and some of it unforgivable, he killed a lot of children is fascinating because it lends this tragic edge to like how he became the way he is. Yeah. To the point where like when he's having his affair with Carmen and like when Carmen leaves him, he's like, you're even leaving me. You're casting me away. Like he wants so bad to be mothered and fathered and, or be accepted and not be alone. But it's just twisted the way he's thinking. So he's become this villainous character. Yeah. And Carmen and Casares totally are kind of these weird proxy parent figures to him. And the yeah. orphanage is essentially his fucking home. That's where he spent 15 years. Even prior to the war, he grew up in this orphanage. And he fucking resents being abandoned and wants to destroy those pillars that kind of made him who he is. But instead of resenting his parents, he resents the people who are actually taking care of him. And he still loves his parents and is obsessed with them. And when him and his two henchmen are around the campfire, and like his two henchmen are like, look, we're about to leave. This is a bullshit. And he's like sitting there staring at the photo of his parents. He's just like, going off about like how proud he is of these people of his parents and these two henchmen could give less of a fuck they just want yeah. the gold and his parents effectively have never been part of his life he doesn't no. know what he's talking about yeah you know there's the inscription on the back of the one photo that says prince without a kingdom and i think that says so fucking much right there because despite him being kind of really only capable fucking adult at this orphanage, again, Carmen and Casares are both old and they're both enfeebled in kind of their own ways, right? But despite that, he also at the orphanage has safety and food and a loving girlfriend. He has everything that he really needs for now. And he has more than most of these characters. But to this type of person, it's not enough because yeah. he's been told. You are the prince without a kingdom. Yeah, you need your kingdom, and this is not it. It's never enough for that type of person, right? Yeah. And it's also never their fault. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's always someone else's fault. It's always that other person's fault. It's always the fault of women. It's the fault of the gays. It's the fault of people of color. It's like the exact disaffected, angry young man that fascists fucking groom by forcing them to kind of further alienate themselves from the people who love them. And then they end up giving up their individuality to like this larger bullshit thing. It feels like if he lived by the end of this movie, he would have joined in with the fascists, like, right? Well, in a mirrored kind of way, he would have just become Captain Vidal from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, you're right. In an interesting kind of Easter egg way, Fernando Tielv, who plays Carlos in this movie and Inigo Garces who plays Jaime. They both actually show up in Pan's Labyrinth in cameos as these two freedom fighters who were executed. 
And I mean, you can completely say like, oh, that's literally just Carlos and Jaime from this movie in a couple of years, you know? So yeah, yeah, if Jacinto had lived through this conflict, yeah, he would totally just be fucking Captain Vidal in a couple of years. His death scene is really memorable to me too, because I mean, from a horror movie standpoint, it's terrifying because he gets dragged down and drowned by a ghost. Well, not just that, but the boys... Like, stab the fuck out of him. <laughs> take their fucking school lesson about the Mastodons yeah. being killed, and they make spears and shit and, you know, fucking stab the hell out of him. Dude, that first stab where he gets it right in the armpit, yikes. Yeah. That would suck. And that's another thing about Del Toro 2 is his movies feature a lot of violence. It's the type of violence that, like, has consequence. Yeah. This isn't a slasher movie, like, dropping bodies. Like, this is grit in your face, not pretty violence. Yeah. Even though he's literally made comic book movies, right? Blade 2, the two Hellboy movies. Fucking Pacific Rim is essentially a comic book movie. Those movies, the violence is... It's like watching a musical, you know? It's kind of choreography. It's not really... It's all floaty. There's no real impact. The violence that you see in Kronos and this movie, Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water, like the violence in those movies is quick and it's fucking dirty and it's mean and you can feel it. Like there is a tangible quality to the violence and he wants to make that violence stick and like have a purpose. Yeah, the video game equivalent of is like The Last of Us. Like, the violence is not pretty. It's grisly and visceral, and you feel it. You feel the impact of it. And likewise, too, ultimately, Santi gets his revenge on Jacinto, but just like revenge and basically anything else, it's just really fucking meaningless and hollow at the end of the day. Jacinto was an evil that needed to be dispatched, right? He is to be pitied, certainly, but not forgiven but ultimately like it's just this hollow thing you know santi is still there he's still stuck and like every kid he had potential he had promise he took the whole prince without a kingdom thing materially though and he took it as i am owed more i deserve more where is mine and that's not what he should have taken from that photo and it's interesting too because there are two other Del Toro movies with basically the same type of character, both played by Luke Goss, oddly enough, but Nomak from Blade 2 and Prince Nuwata from Hellboy 2, very similar archetypes, right? Of like these cast off lesser than princes who are returning to like gain power from their fathers and take what's rightfully theirs in air quotes. It's a very common trope, but I like the fact that Del Toro again, like creates this character that At the same time, you can fucking loathe, but then also you have to have some pity for him because he's a victim of circumstance just as much as anybody else in this. Yeah, I pity him when he was a seven-year-old. I don't pity him right now like with the evil shit he's doing as a young adult. Sure, 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 sure. Like (laughs) You pity the child that was lost, not the man that has come out of this. And, you know, by that token, too, Carlos and the rest of the boys are now kind of without a future at the end of this movie. And they've had to resort to violence in order to survive 
which kind of strips their innocence, you know, but you're hoping that this doesn't destroy their soul in the same way that Jacinto allowed himself to be, you know, and just consumed by his rage. I do like that this is truly a bittersweet ending and a hopeful one. There's still the war. Yeah. The fascists are still coming. These boys now have no parental figures because they're all dead. Man, Dr. Caceres' death, because before he dies, he's just like, you know, I've always come up short in life. I promise I'm not going to come up short this time. And physically, he does. Like, he dies before they arrive back, Jacinto and his two goons. But then you find out that his ghost was aiding yeah. the boys a little bit. So he does fulfill that promise in the end. They don't have any father figures. One of the boys is like crippled at this moment. And they're a day's walk from the nearest town, which has already basically been taken over by the right wing army. So, yeah, you kind of are left to like, what are they going to do now? But they are leaving. They did survive the ordeal. Kind of something, too, that I wanted to just touch on. We don't necessarily have to spend much time talking about this, but I did feel like in this movie there was an interesting kind of Western feel to some of the plot. Yeah, with totally. The orphanage. The orphanage felt like a Western setting it's out in the middle of the desert of spain the whole macguffin of this entire film is these gold plates and that's what causes jacinto to like go off the fucking deep end he wants to steal these gold plates and become that prince with a kingdom now so at the backdrop of all this political turmoil all this childhood coming of age dark fantasy like you have simple greed as well yeah. on top of everything else. And it's such a bullshit thing, too, because, again, he talks with Conchita about, oh, we're going to, like, go buy a farm in the country and we're going to be fine. No, you're not. No, you're fucking not. What do you think you're going to do? You can't just tromp off with this fucking gold and be like, here, here's a gold bar. I'm buying a farm. Also, like, just completely ignore the fact that this war is still going on, right? It's just such a bullshit, weird fantasy of we're going to get out of this and everything's going to be okay. Well, that's where kind of his boyhood naivete still kind of comes out. I found that fascinating uh, yeah. as well, but that's just kind of a quick aside. The Western feel of it, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, visually, that is what they were going for. Obviously, on the surface, this is a gothic ghost story. Yeah. But being that it's set in Spain, I mean, why not? stylistically go for Western a little bit, considering this is the land of Leone, right? I, I like to, looking at like some stuff with the DP, Guillermo Navarro, he and Del Toro specifically kind of wanted to go for a like John Ford, Sergio Leone, Remington painting kind of Western look for the daytime with lots of- Oh, okay. Yeah. Golds and yellows and browns. And then kind of contrast that at night and go for more of a bava look with strong cyans and greens and kind of whites at night. Yeah. At night, it feels a lot more like a traditional like horror ghost story. Yeah. So, I mean, that was all very purposeful. And that's something that would carry on through all the other movies. I mean, Hellboy is very heavy on that. Pan's Labyrinth is very heavy on that. The lighting is just as important to the cinematography as anything else. Guillermo Navarro, by the way, the DP, fucking awesome. He's worked on most of Del Toro's stuff. Kronos, Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim. But he also worked with Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino a lot as well. He did Desperado. He did Four Rooms from Dust Till Dawn. Jackie Brown. He also shot The Long Kiss Goodnight, which you and I fucking love. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, Navarro is awesome. He won an Academy Award for Pan's Labyrinth. But yeah, the Western look was a very purposeful thing all said and done. And they purposely chose that location out in the middle of nowhere to kind of evoke that as well. So the movie was shot over 51 days. And they shot it all like in continuity in Madrid and Telemanco, which is outside of Madrid. That's kind of impressive, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah 51 days doesn't seem like a lot of time. No, it's shoot not something like this. I, I was reading some bits and pieces about how like they were super, super rushed trying to get everything going. The orphanage itself was designed and built by production designer Cesar Macaron on the bones of this old school. The basement with the cistern was actually shot at a nearby farm. Really? Yeah. But the actual (laughs) underwater scenes were all filmed in a tank. They couldn't build a tank. They didn't have the fucking time and the resources to build a water tank. What they ended up finding was this fucking tank that firefighters trained in to do underwater rescue for like car accidents. Like if a car goes into a river Mm. or something like that, they tinted the water brown and added some milk and sunk a bounce board to kind of get some light down into the water and the bounce board took two days to sink down there and then when they went to go shoot all the silver from the bounce board had evaporated (laughs) into the water just all these things that did not work as planned and del toro and his whole crew had to like immediately pivot and find a solution or make a change. Like, that's one thing I appreciate about him as well. He's a very good on his feet. Let's improvise and make a change. And he is very open to hearing people's suggestions as well, too, which a lot of directors don't fucking tolerate that, right? Not at all. Yeah. Something weird. Del Toro has a way of shooting water that no other director does. I've yeah. noticed. Yeah. He, he makes it haunting and beautiful simultaneously in a way that not many other directors do. I mean, that scene, I can't stress enough where he gets drowned by Santi at the end. Jacinto. Yeah, yeah. Jacinto is one of the scarier, like creepier moments, not just because it's a ghost doing it. That, I mean, that is terrifying, but like just the water itself is just so murky and ethereal and he is an act of drowning. And then, yeah, then the ghost pops out from behind him and takes him down. Yeah, that is a creepy horror moment to me. One of the other major influences on the story and kind of the overall look of the world was a Spanish comic series called Paracuelos, which I want to kind of look this up, I think. I've heard of it. From what I understand, it is basically Mouse, but for the Spanish Civil War. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was written by Carlos Jimenez. And it kind of detailed his experiences growing up in an orphanage in post-World War II Franco, Spain. He started writing the stories as soon as Franco died, and he wouldn't be subject to, like, censorship or imprisonment. But Del Toro brought Jimenez in, and he was the art director and storyboard artist for this movie. And a lot of the story elements, like the barter economy that the boys have was all kind of directly inspired by that comic series. So that's like a super well-known comic series in Spain, but I've not really seen it in the U.S. necessarily. So that's something that I'm kind of interested in maybe tracking down and getting um, a volume or two of. Yeah, I wonder if it's been translated or not. Yeah, and even then, 
my Spanish is okay enough what I'm reading that I could probably make it through pretty well. Yeah. We brought it up earlier, but it's interesting too. Del Toro obviously didn't make The Count of Monte Cristo with Kit Carson, but so much of that story also kind of found its way into this one. Just the idea of wanting desperately to escape this place where you're stuck. Dante and Faria's relationship in prison and them kind of becoming friends and allies is very much Jaime and Carlos, right? Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of blindly seeking revenge that's ultimately like a lot of that thematic stuff found its way into this story. Ultimately, the movie was released in Spain in April of 2001, but it got a very limited release in the US. Um, it debuted at Telluride on September 2nd, and then it was at TIFF on September 9th, but then, oops, fuck, 9-11. And so, it didn't even have a chance to get judged at TIFF. Mm. You know, again, this was one of those movies that completely got overshadowed because just nobody was paying attention to movies at the time. I don't think this movie really got its due, at least in no. America, until Del Toro like became a household name. Yeah, and it wasn't unsuccessful. I mean, it made... million on its 4.5 million budget. And it got unanimous praise across the board, right? So it wasn't a failure. Yeah, it wasn't one of those horror movies that we talk about all the time where like it was panned at first and then, you know, it's now accepted. Like, no, it was critically acclaimed right off the get go, I saw. But it's interesting to think if this movie had gotten the same or close to the same response as Pan's Labyrinth a couple of years later, right? If this movie had been nominated for Best Original Screenplay, if this movie had been nominated for Cinematography, if this movie had been nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, where would Del Toro's career be now if he didn't have to hop back and do some like Hollywood blockbustery movies for a couple yeah. of years before doing something like Pan's Labyrinth again, right? We wouldn't have had Blade 2. We wouldn't have had Hellboy yeah. by Del Toro, at least. And I don't know if we would have Pan's Labyrinth. Because maybe like that tract is kind of what put him on the way to Pan's Labyrinth. I feel like this idea, this entire idea of this movie just did not leave him. No. It just evolved into this other thing a couple of years later. To round it all the way back, again, I think it's a perfect way to describe it. This is the more boy-male-oriented view of the same thing that Pan's Labyrinth is looking at, whereas... And the Labyrinth is more of the little girl feminine view of it. Well, it's also interesting, too, because it's this movie taking place during the conflict and then Pan's Labyrinth being set just a few years after the conflict and the aftermath yeah. of it. But yeah. you're still seeing both aspects of it from these well, two kids. And then, like, there's also a little bit of maturity in the same way that the conflict has ended in del toro himself because he put this movie out and then years later he put out pan labyrinth and he's more accomplished as a filmmaker more mature at that point so kind of to shift gears a little bit because before we we wrap up our conversation like we we need to talk about the actual aspects of the gothicness and horror associated with this movie like we've touched on like the political allegory and how it's intelligent but there's actually a really effective ghost story on the surface of all of this the two things I wanted to touch on in, in that regard are the actual name of the movie, The Devil's Backbone. I was reading that 
the movie was initially taken from the Devil's Backbone mountain range in Mexico. Yeah, because this movie was supposed to be set in Mexico during their revolution. Yeah, yeah. but with it being set in Spain, Del Toro actually, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying, Aaron, of his ability to pivot, they kind of make up their own lore as to what is the Devil's Backbone in this movie. And the Devil's Backbone itself is a whole metaphor for a lot of the things that are going on in this movie as well. And we joked about this in our intro, but uh, the Devil's Backbone refers to the fetal spine when, specifically in Spina Bifida, yeah, when a fetus is born with their spine exposed and obviously they don't live. In the, this movie, the doctor has caused this, it's almost like kind of the pseudoscience-y, like spiritual concoction of like this rum where the fetuses with Spina Bifida are preserved in the rum and they contain the Devil's Backbone. And it causes limbo water. It's called limbo water. And it has this rumor that it can cure impotence. And the doctor, you find out, is selling this special rum to the local town to help yeah. fund the orphanage. They're so desperate to get food. They're running a scam. And everything that yeah. literally fucking draining all the fucking nasty juice from all these preserved fetuses at this former school to keep them alive yeah yeah he's running a scam to like help the children basically i I love that scene when he's saying what the devil's backbone is and then after he like dismisses carlos the scene stays on him and he winds up taking a shot yeah of being like well you never know maybe like if you believe in it enough it it, it works but it's clear that he is not superstitious he's not religious it's just one of those things where like at this point what could it hurt Right. Yeah. You know, they're all just that desperate. It's a placebo kind of thing. Like they're placebo, all just that yeah, yeah. desperate. Doesn't fucking hurt. Might as well. Again, like going back to the horror and the gothic nature of this, like that's such a gothic, weird thing. Prop that idea of fetuses preserved and you're drinking the juices. And granted, again, he's doing it as a scam, but like it's still like such a like harrowing thing. Yeah. <laughs> kind of problematic, harrowing, disturbing thing. Like, it would definitely be like an oddity that you would show in a museum. Well, that again, Del Toro's work is full of disturbing moments like that. Disturbing is the word. Carmen and Jacinto fucking is disturbing in this weird Oedipal kind of way. To add to the disturbing nature of them fucking, it's borderline hate fucking too, oh, right? Sure, 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 sure. They're both completely resentful of it, but they both yeah. need it. They both have to have it. Yeah. yeah. And Jacinto is doing it, like you said, from that weird looking for motherly attention. And she is doing it because like at the end of the day, she's tired and lonely. Yeah. Yeah. It's but anyway, continue with disturbing. Just that. I mean, like all of his movies always had these small touches of things like that. I think it's just part of his sensibility is he's interested in showing people as complicated and fucked up and like idiosyncratic as they are in real life. It's it's like catching, you know, your teacher eating a booger. You know, there's just like something weird about it where you're like, that's mm, how do I feel about that? Right. Yeah. There's just always things like that in his movies that throw you off a little bit but in a very interesting way that provides texture and yeah. character. And I very much appreciate that. Um, one thing that he does on a lot of his movies, and he certainly did it on this movie, is he will write out a character's entire biography 
Del Toro is very Meisner in his direction with actors. So he's providing them with this entire fictional biography of these characters and saying, here, study this, like become this. This is who you are now. Take this in. I read that Jacinto's actor specifically mentioned that Del Toro handed him that and told him to read it. Yeah. You know, this movie is so fucking interesting 20 years on because not only is it held up incredibly well, but it's so prescient to like what has transpired in the 20 years since 9-11 here in America, let alone the rest of the world in this larger way. And this movie that is exploring all this trauma of the past, and yet it is still 100% what is currently kind of happening if we can just open our eyes and pay attention. And it's acting very much like the ghost and the bomb in this movie. Like this movie is acting as a signpost and a warning and trying to kind of show like this is the consequence of pointless, fruitless conflict, right? And who's caught in the middle of it and who suffers the most, the kids, right? Like they're the ones that suffer the most from this and they don't know how to handle it like they don't know how to process it and they have to have love and care and guidance to like get through this complicated shit it's one of those things where like it's hard to go back obviously and think about where we were as kids when 9-11 happened but it's one of those things where like god damn i fucking wish our parents had just been there for us a little bit more, right? Like, I wish that we mm-hmm. had adults who had been able to fucking explain what was happening. Instead of hiding it, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know how, how it was for you. Like, they tried their best to hide it. It felt like so much of it was swept under the rug, yeah. Yeah, the thing they didn't hide from us was the patriotism that followed. Oh, yeah, yeah. The fascism aspect of it was yeah. on full display. But the actual tragedy itself, they tried to hide it from us, which As a parent, I don't agree with it, but I understand where it was coming from. But it's one of those mistakes that I've learned from. Yeah. And hopefully I do not repeat with my own child because it's good intentions paving the way to hell. That's kind of like, I think, where a lot of the nature of this movie sits in as well. We're actually seeing the way to hell happening after the good intentions were done. But yeah, like, I agree with you, like, maybe just exposing us to the truth and the reality, but contextualizing it with love and affection would have been the better way of going about it. It sounds like we're getting close to wrapping it up. So the second thing I wanted to bring up about the actual horror of this movie was Santi the ghost himself. I was reading something because I brought up earlier, like, the only, like, other, as far as creatively and how the ghost is portrayed physically and its appearance and everything. The only other thing that like is just as creative to me are like the ghost designs and the Fatal Frame game series, that J-horror ghost design. And it's interesting that I drew that comparison while watching this because there's a Criterion article on The Devil's Backbone, kind of in the same way that I brought up the Criterion article for Eyes Without a Face. I don't have the information on hand right now, but just search like Devil's Backbone Criterion, and I'm sure you can find the article. But the article does mention that in a way might be a nod to the Japanese Kaiden era specifically style of ghost story well, see that. filmmaking yeah. with the mask light white porcelain face of like no theater 
And I thought that was an interesting kind of comparison between the two. I feel like the, in horror movies, we get two kinds of ghosts. We get ghosts that are tragic and sad, in this case, Santi. And then you have the violent ghosts in the more like, you know, possession, blah, blah, blah kind of style of this. Santi himself is creepy, but also as captivating as he is creepy that yeah. the fucking design that I and I don't know if this was Del Toro who decided this or not because he's killed with a blow to the head and his ghost is almost like that white porcelain mask his face but you have the blood dripping out of the crack in the top of his head where his head split open when he, he was killed and the blood is constantly flowing upwards like it's in the water still and like there's a certain wetness to Santi because his friend after he is killed drops him in the water is almost like a water burial and just all this visual storytelling with him as a ghost and like the audio cues and the whisperings and the wetness and the water dripping yep. all of it's so effective from a horror but also storytelling and tragic standpoint i love the design of santi like one of the best ghost designs in a horror movie i can remember the only one recently i can compare it to as far as like creatively interesting to look at is sadako from ring that we covered fairly recently. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the idea of how the movie begins and ends the narration of what is a ghost. I'll just read it out loud since it's set in Spanish narration. What is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again, an instant of pain, perhaps something dead, which still seems to be alive an emotion suspended in time, like a blurred photograph, like an insect trapped in amber. What a good poetic description of what a ghost is. Even in ghost hunting circles, the idea of hauntings, is it just history reliving itself? Is it energy trapped in a place after some major event happens? It all goes kind of hand in hand with that. That was kind of the final point I wanted to make was about Santi the ghost. Well, I love too that, you know, the narration at the beginning is Dr. Casares. And then at the end, he repeats the same exact thing but ends it with a ghost is me ghost that is what i am yeah you kind of have that full flip around with that last little add-on once we kind of see the final fate of the characters yeah just super poetic and haunting and just tragic and kind of bittersweet you know it's very interesting like i said just to kind of wonder like where things go from here and Pan's Labyrinth yeah. is very similar in kind of how it ends. That is everything going to be okay? Probably not. But this is as good as it can possibly be for where these characters are, I guess. Yeah. And it, it makes sense with him being the character that does that narration. Because again, it is extremely poetic. And he yeah. is the poet. Uh, one last aside. I want to bring up about Del Toro, the man himself. If you get a chance, just look up and you can find it on YouTube uh, from Conan O'Brien. Specifically, when Conan was doing his talk show on TBS, there is a segment. It's only like a few minutes long where Andy Richter, Conan O'Brien's comedy partner and sidekick, where Andy Richter goes and visits Del Toro's house with all his horror shit. And it's a great video of just like walking around and seeing like the Linda Blair, like possessed prop sitting in the couch and just the Frankenstein monster, just all this horror and nerd memorabilia. Just all over his house. Check it out. It's hilarious. Other little last tidbits that I have that aren't really tied to anything. This is the only Del Toro movie to not feature either Ron Perlman or Doug Jones. Wow. I didn't realize that they were in every other one of his movies. Yeah. (laughs) Santi is played 
by Junio Valverde mostly. Well, during the scenes uh, with the water tank, he ended up suffering from barrow trauma to his ears from being underwater so long. Oof. And so he had to step out of the movie and was replaced by another young actor named Andreas Munoz. So he's like Ghost Santi in a few shots underwater. Conchita, who was played by Irene Vicedo, she was in 258 episodes of a like long running, I guess it's maybe like a telenovela kind of thing that has been going since 2001 called Quintame Como Paso, which is Tell Me How It Happened. And it is about a family living through kind of the last few years of the Franco regime and transitioning into the early 80s, into that new, fully liberated kind of era. And so it's this long-running series that she has been a part of. And I just, I thought it was interesting that, like, she's in this movie the same year that she starts working on that and has been on literally this entire time. Like, she's still apparently a part of this show. It's interesting that we were talking about how it's a very touchy subject, but it seems like a lot of creative stuff out of Spain is either in the backdrop or the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. Post-Franco, more people have come out and started talking about it and analyzing it and being critical of the era and everything else. It's just kind of how that country is healing from that. Like I mentioned earlier, Criterion released this film on Blu-ray in 2013 with the spine number 666, which is kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. (laughs) Sony just released it on 4K as part of this Sony Pictures Classics 30th Anniversary box set. Now, what's aggravating, as we were kind of discussing beforehand, was even though this is like a Criterion movie, in air quotes, it is not on the Criterion Channel streaming platform. Again, I think with Sony just putting it out on 4K, they kind of maybe rejiggered the streaming rights to it. So you can watch it on Prime, and you can watch it on Prime in 4K, and you can still rent it from iTunes, from YouTube, from wherever. Yeah, listeners, I I rented it for about three bucks on YouTube. Yeah, but it seems to be in like a weird like streaming rights limbo, maybe, but it's it's on Prime. I I saw it on Prime. pulled it up it played it's 4k so you know you can check it out there and it is available physically although i'm aggravated there's not a fucking just single 4k release not part of this fucking box set whatever (laughs) anyway that's just me bitching yeah cool so i think that's it yeah thank you for uh, sticking with us long episode i mean first del toro a movie that has a lot on its fucking mind like we we knew this was gonna be a long one and i purposely told you specifically like yeah i need a few more days to work on my notes i'm still kind of getting over covid and i just wasn't prepared to the extent that i thought i was because at the end of the day like this movie means a lot to me like i said del toro is a filmmaker that i care about personally a ton his movies mean a lot to me and this movie specifically i think is one of the best movies from that entire decade it's fantastic if there is a movie that really really truly means a lot to me personally that we have covered this is certainly one of them so i would definitely recommend people like 
please watch this fucking movie. If you're listening to this episode idly just for shit's sake and you've not seen this movie, like, what are you doing? Watch this movie. Uh, honestly, I, I can't say it any other better way. It is one of the best movies we've covered. This is my first time watching it and it blew me away. This is one of the best movies we have absolutely covered on our show so far. Uh, I'm assuming it's going to remain that way no matter how many more episodes are coming out after. It's that fucking good. I know you have to read subtitles. It's a foreign movie, but trust me, like it is so worth the watch. This is just storytelling at its finest. Some of the best horror shit I've seen on screen in a while. Legitimately scary at certain points, but also just fascinating. Like every emotion evoked at certain point in this movie type of thing. It shows Del Toro at his, as best. Another movie I, I do think outside of specifically Del Toro's directed movies uh, that I, th- I think will also eventually cover besides Pan's Labyrinth that also kind of seems like a spiritual successor. This movie is The Orphanage. So we initially thought about doing that movie. Yeah, peek behind the curtain. We thought about doing The Orphanage first, but yeah. then uh, you smartly were like, no, let's do Devil's Backbone first because that kind of sets the stage for later on The Orphanage. Yeah, I mean, the guy that directed The Orphanage is protege of Del Toro. Del Toro produced that movie. So much of what that movie is doing is a reflection of this movie. Like, it only made sense that, like, why have we still not done a Del Toro? So that was kind of a perfect example to, like, go ahead and jump into this. And I'm glad we did. Yeah, and I'm excited for us to come back to Del Toro with other movies. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool. Well, uh, I guess that's it for this episode of watch if you dare a horror movie podcast hosted by me your movie monster boy and my craven co-host derek baby in which we dissect the fears phobias social relevancy of horror movies from all eras and subgenres. definitely continue to download and listen to and enjoy all of our episodes um, on any podcatcher that you choose, we are basically on all of them, but specifically if you are on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, please go on and rate us five stars and uh, continue to follow our podcast as well. We greatly appreciate it. We appreciate everyone's support and feedback. It means a lot to us. Oopsie doopsie. This episode was recorded before our Patreon launched, so we neglected to mention that here at the end. So. Guess what? We now have a Patreon. For only $5 per month, you can join the Watch If You Dare Spook Troop and get access to bonus content such as interviews, franchise deep dives, lists and rankings, and even episodes covering horror television. Your support helps us keep the show running, available on all platforms, and ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash watch if you dare and join the Spook Troop today. On that note, we also have our Spotify music playlist pinned to the top of our socials, which is just a collection of music and spooky tunes and fun shit that we have put together for you to enjoy. Also, check out my younger brother Jesse Mansfield's music, uh, aka Party Gator. He did the music bumps the beginning and ends of all of our episodes. Uh, you can check out more of his stuff on Bandcamp at Party Gator at Big Clown at Opossum. So get some good music, throw him a couple of bucks. He would greatly appreciate it. And then, yeah, I think that is basically it. So do we have any final thoughts? 
Now, Aaron, I know I read the ghost poem earlier, but I think the actual real poem that Del Toro wrote was, What is a Sally? A podcast condemned to repeat itself time and again? An instant of joke, perhaps. A fat man screaming in a field. (laughs) (laughs) Sally! And then getting chainsawed in half. Yes, I am the Sally. Sally, that's what I am. (laughs) 